0: To
1: episode forty of adult music. It's number forty, Mike. Number forty, and I am celebrating by with lubricant. Lubricant, <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. I'm still doing this. Um, this. Uh, what are you doing? West over there? Cork whiskey that I had last week. Oh. I have to tell you, by the end of last week's episode. Now, if listeners are still curious about this, last week I mentioned that I had, it was it's a very high proof, and I might fall silent during, the, <laughs> during the jazz not much part, but I didn't. That, but you didn't, I became no. more loquacious because loquacious. of the liquor. I like that word loquacious, but so I'm drinking this again, but the thing is my eyes, by the end of last week's episode, my eyes were all like teary and I could, I really could <laughs> not oh. see anything. It was yeah. just making my eyes tear up. What was that jerky boys? One?
0: My eyes is going crazy. <laughs> <laughs> As long as oh, your man. ears are alright um, But we've already done the listening uh, As usual so
1: Yeah, so we don't have to listen Well, yeah Do we want to promote do, do a quick promotion for next week's episode? Well, we can do that so this, is, this is episode yeah. 40 uh, yeah. Plus three a, a interviews mm.
0: yeah. uh, Kind of a uh, milestone I guess we're pushing for 50 Of adult music The podcasts yeah. with music for the mature mind yeah. And uh, next week We'll have our special Christmas music episode, which we're preparing for. Yeah, it's going to be. And that. We'll stay that with one, our
1: format with new Christmas recordings. New it's Christmas not going to be like recordings. a. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And that one we're going to do face to face in the mountain lair. Uh, as we prepare Ooh. to have some Christmas sausages and steaks, so
1: yeah, I mean, we're going to be together for that one. Yeah, you know, usually we're, we we do this on you know separately on Zoom, so yeah. we're not in the same room at the moment. But next week we will be. It's we'll be, gonna gonna be firing amazing. up
0: the mixer, and uh, it's probably yeah. we'd we'll be doing it earlier in the day. So we'll have to bring out the booze early in the day. Oh,
1: <laughs> there there <laughs> and, will be uh, much lubrication. We'll yeah, lubricate
0: everything up. And yeah. uh, get a Christmas episode, and then we'll, I think we'll have one more regular episode, and then we'll have our best of the year episode. Yeah, that'll be the at, last right episode after of the Christmas. year. So when you're burnt out from all the Christmas music, uh, you can check out that episode. That'll be the day after Christmas, and yeah, twenty-sixth, uh, huh? That will give mm. us and the listeners a chance to uh, go back and uh, pick up anything that you missed from the good releases in classical and jazz this year. So all that to come before the end of the month. So
1: Yeah. In fact I'm still discovering new stuff from twenty twenty one. Um uh the Diapason, the French Diapason magazine just put out their um their Diapason Dordane list and I'm always fascinated by this. They they pick around fifteen albums, classical albums that they really liked and they always have um things that I've missed just because they're really you know peculiar to France and not really you know well they are available all over Europe but a lot of, I read a lot of the British magazines and they don't really um uh cover every all this stuff you know that's happening probably leave in uh, all the, French the rest stuff of Europe just
0: because they don't like to pronounce it
1: well I think it's kind of it's a it's a distribution issue speaking of which one of my choices for next week for the Christmas episode had a distribution issue it was actually released last December but it didn't really make the rounds um for any distributors around me until May so I just found out about right. it that in time. May yeah. so I'm going to feature it yeah. on the episode I'm, it's not, I'm not going to tell you what it is yet we'll find out next right. week yeah. yeah
0: so yeah there's a lot to come before the end of the year and I think we're going to break 5,000 downloads too shortly so
1: that's exciting as well that'll be good for us as our audience grows it's been a good year and more to come it's been a fantastic music listening year it it may not have been I know a lot of people suffered from the uh, all these like I guess lockdowns or odd kind of things oh i remember you were asking me how to um how i wanted to open this episode i just remembered that we in japan are living are are we're not locked down or anything we're absolutely free but you listeners outside of japan are not allowed in so That's i just right. want to say to everybody greetings from the hermit kingdom of japan now what's worrying about this is they once did this for 300 years so, so guess they said they said they could open up in january again but you never know we could be here forever
0: at least the rest of our years yeah oh, wow.
1: Well. <laughs> the rest of our years which uh, i think there are, i think there are less of those left than the years uh, that've gone by at yeah. least for me there are i don't know unless i'm going to live to be 120 or something
0: i don't know well yeah. we'll see how many episodes we can get in in that time
1: yeah between the in the next 40 years or so
0: anyway before <laughs> we get rolling with The Big 4-0 here, Uh, all of our listeners, uh, everything we're going to talk about in uh, the episode here you'll find in the description with links to uh, Spotify and Apple Music if you want to check out the recordings if you haven't done so already, and uh, also in there is a link to the full episode playlist, that's all the music in one place on Deezer, uh, our preferred streaming Service. Also, you can follow us uh, there for the playlist or listen to the podcast on Deezer as well at our username Adult Music Podcast. Now, I know we're on probably more than 30 different podcast services, and not all of them render the hyperlinks for the music links equally as well. So if you can't access anything or shows up uh, not so clear, uh, just jump over to our host, Podbean, where everything is uh, easy to follow and all the links are active.
1: Podbean.com, that is, right? Podbean.com, that's right. Right, Okay. Just type Uh, in Podbean, it'll get there. Just type in
0: Podbean. Uh, If you uh, enjoy listening to the podcast, uh, then do follow or subscribe on whatever platform or app you listen to us on. Uh, Take a moment, give us a ranking, write a review. That'll help us get listed in the browsing category, which... We've been in for the last week in Podbean and also Apple Podcasts, which is not so easy to do because there's so many uh, music commentary Mm -hmm. podcasts out there and there's not many doing what we do though, so we're happy to be in there, and that's given us a boost in the
1: downloads I, yeah, like I don't, I don't think there. anybody's doing what we do we're kind of not exactly no yeah. we're kind of unique and, you know they'll they'll, they'll often other podcasts will often interview people they have access to a lot of these people we don't but we we will go out and fish for to try to get an interview, but uh they sort of um a lot of people have been working in the field for a long time, so they yeah, they have access well, I've got to a to good idea artists.
0: for one that I told you about coming up.
1: So hopefully we get that in the new year. Another interview. Um, I, tried, I tried to get a few this uh, in this this half of the year. They didn't come through though. Nobody right. wanted to. Well, we had. did uh, want to talk to us. We we aimed kind of high though, to be honest.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, we had um, our uh, award winner Gil Rose. We had uh, Gil Rose? Mike, Yeah. Yeah, Mike LeDon, and then we had the Renitsky discovery. So that was a good start yeah. for this year. Um, yeah. And uh we'll have some more coming up soon, I think.
1: Yeah, you know, it's amazing to me. If we weren't doing this podcast, I still wouldn't know who Renitsky is. It's really mm. because of that and because we talked to uh Bernard and uh Daniel and yeah. Narek, that the we uh, that I know who he is. So yeah. check check out that's our big discovery of the year, that Paul Ren- the music of Paul Renitsky, so that's definitely right. check that out on the Naxos label. That's W R A N Renitsky. Okay. Yeah.
0: Anyway, uh in addition to that, if you'd uh give us a comment or uh a uh, like on your service. Uh, if you want to contact us directly, please uh, feel free to do so. We'd happy to uh, answer any comments or questions. Our email address is Adult Music Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com.
1: Yeah, write to us. We'd love to hear from you. We've gotten Let's, a lot. We've gotten some nice uh, email from people. Yeah, yeah. A, they're They're all kind of interesting. I guess yeah. people who listen to music are kind of. I don't know. They they have interesting kind of comments and questions and stuff. We haven't gotten anything nasty yet. If you Not want to send us something nasty, go ahead. We're up for it. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> <You
0: know? laughs> we're both from New York. It'll only take a few if, minutes if you to hate, send... If you
1: hate us, come on. just yeah. You'll bring out our New York. It'll be great. It'll <laughs> only bring... s- take a few minutes to send a retort back to you. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to hear from you. It depends what yeah. they say. I mean, That's We may right. very well send a retort back. <laughs> yeah, we might. Yeah. <laughs> I anyway,
0: uh, I think we're going to go way back to begin this episode tonight. Uh, yeah. You're going to have to... Uh,
1: we haven't been this far back in the this past is the earliest, yet. yeah. Okay, I mean, so getting into the classical recordings, and I want to mention that I've been sitting on this album for months now because I was very intimidated, first of all, by its length. It's four CDs, so it's about four hours long. And its age, These, this music is uh, from the medieval era, and it's kind of the era I know least about. I mean, you know, there are specialists working in this era. Um, but this is uh, the medieval era. It's, it's um, okay, well, let me just give you the album first. It's Zakara da Teramo, Complete Works. Oh, Alright, now his complete works. <laughs> Com- Let's say complete extant works. He may very well have written more. This is like seven hundred years old, this music. Um this is uh performed by La Fonte Musica and uh directed by Michele Passotti, who we hear a lot of on the album because he plays the all the medieval lutes and especially um especially um on the third and fourth discs which are more secular music uh, by the way the pronunciation of the word lute I like to say lute I had a teacher who insisted it was lute which is how it's often sung and um, he, ins- he said to me that uh, if I if I didn't pronounce it the way he wanted me to that he was going to puke. but mm. I still say lute I like lute better
0: I like it better too
1: yeah, yeah lute the lute yeah.
0: Anyway, do you this call is, people, um, who pl- who people who people play the lute loot are looters? <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> but wait a minute, people they're an who unsavory make,
1: group of people.
0: People who make guitars are called what? Well,
1: the guitarists. So a lute, no, would be a who make guitars? Make guitars? Yeah. Are they?
0: Oh God, guitariers or luthiers? They're probably luthiers. Yeah. So what do you call people who make lutes? Mm-hmm.
1: I guess they'd be whatever came before the loot. Anyway, let's <laughs> they'd, just be call it loot they'd be, be, be li- liar or something. I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. Anyway, <laughs> don't know. this is
0: on the Alpha label, right? We're
1: joking, of course, people. We, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, on the yeah. Alpha, the alpha label, label, and this is quite a production. Let me tell you. All right, let me tell you, first of all, a little bit about uh, Zachara da Terremont. He lived between... Well, he was born between 1360 and 1364. Now, that's a long, long time ago. The um, Baroque era, which is kind of where the repertoire starts, although it's been pushed back into the Renaissance era with John Dowland and Josquin, which we covered this year. That does, that's the 1500s. But this is even 200 years, 150 years before that. Um, uh so before the Renaissance, before we had all this um, counterpoint, counterpoint was still being developed, really, at the time of uh, Zachara de Teramo, And he was a member, <laughs> say a member, but there was um, a, a composition, kind of, they say school, and a group of composers called the Ars Nova. And he was one of them. He, he, and um, what this is, it comes between Guillaume de Machaut who wrote his works, the greatest composer of his era, the 1300s. And, um, he, um, composed in isorhythm. and isorhythm was a long kind of set of like uh, a long rhythmic pattern that would repeat, you know, and you, you were locked into that pattern. You had to, all your note values had to kind of take that on. So sometimes you'd wind up with these incredibly dissonant harmonies, you know, dissonant meaning like ear splitting in this case, not, you know, dissonant leading to consonants. Um, so, uh, there, there was that. And after him came the Ars Nova and, uh, what they did, they started writing like, um, sort of a melody line, or maybe they would take a Gregorian chant and then they'd kind of decorate it around like with a lot of melismatic. um, like vocalization, and we're gonna hear a lot of that here on this album as well. Uh, the uh, two, um, the two great. Um, Nova composers were Leonan and Perrotan and they were also, like Machaut, associated with Notre Dame Cathedral. Uh, Zachara da Teramo was not and um, he's kind of an interesting figure. We really don't know much about him. I hadn't even heard of him until I saw this album and I was very curious about it. Um, His birth name is Antonio di Berardo di Andrea and he was nicknamed Zaccara because he was small in stature. I really don't know what Zaccara means in Italian. I've never heard this word before. Okay, he was born in Teramo in the Abruzzi region, so he's Italian. Okay, so he's kind of far away from the uh where the action is in Paris. You know, this is where all the the, the, the stuff is happening. Um on this album, by the way, it's called Enigma Fortuna. Um Zaccara da Teramo Complete Works. Um And this uh, comes in a box if you buy it, or you can see the cover image on your uh, streaming site. Um, It's got a gorgeous cover image um, of the Church of Santa Maria della Pietà um, in the right corner and a vista of brown rolling hills giving way to mountains in the far distance. The church is in the small town of Rocca Calascio, located in the province of Aquila, Abruzzo, if you want to visit. And uh, this is on the east coast of Italy, bordering with Lazio, uh, which is where Rome is. This church was built in the 17th century, long after the music on this CD was written. So there you go. It's a gorgeous image, by the way. I really love the cover art. This might win him one of my cover art uh, awards of the year. And that's another thing we should do. We should pick uh the best, best cover, cover art, art of the we year. We could do that, yeah. Also, yeah, especially in, especially in classical music cuz it's usually terrible, but sometimes they have good ones.
0: This recording doesn't sound like it was recorded in the 13th century.
1: It uh, certainly does you know, not. It's, in it's, fact, uh, if it were recorded in the 13th century, we would know that aliens exist or yeah. that time travel was possible. <laughs> it's
0: uh it's very clear and uh a pleasure to listen to. That's it sonics. is. sonics.
1: Yes not only that it's not only the sonics but the ensemble themselves um they're um they're um appropriately um subdued when they do the sacred music and then they really come alive with this almost italianate kind of emotion when they get to the secular songs and we'll discuss this as we go um all right so let's go on to the music of zakara da teramo um if you know renaissance era masses by somebody like Josquin, we've covered him on this show, um, and Palestrina and people like that. These masses, uh, in this, on CD one, the sacred music disc, by the way, if you're going to stream this, you're just going to get like a hundred tracks altogether, <laughs> you know, I hope they label them, but it's easy to follow everything with the booklet and the, uh, c- if you have a CD box of this, which I do actually, I'm kind of happy to have it. Um, these um, masses here are these mass movements. We don't get an entire mass. Um, they're more spare and coarse in their harmony. So that they don't have this like buttery sort of um, uh, counterpoint that you'd normally get like in Renaissance era. They, they sound nice and polished and really beautiful. Uh, these are a little more, uh, they have more of an edge to them. There are occasional dissonances on certain syllables as the harmony passes through to something more consonant, which was acceptable at the time. Um and it also, in baroque music to an extent too, you started to hear some of this uh it makes the music interesting and unique to our contemporary ears, and I think that's part of the reason why we like listening to this music when we hear it because it's just different it's not it doesn't really sound like everything else it's uh it's really unique to itself it's kind when of listen- leading to the Renaissance
0: yeah, when I listen to this, I think um you know there's different arguments about language and music that, Mm. you know, some things that uh, conform to uh, a sort of universal human conception or preference, you know, even like across cultures, you know, a major chord uh, sort of elicits a type of response and so a minor chord or other sort of dissonance or uh, consonants kind of in music. And this is kind of a period when you know, compared to later eras like Baroque, the the so-called rules are still being worked out. Yeah. And um, so, as you listen to this uh, recording, it will, you know, it's, Rather simple in terms of uh, harmonic development, let's say, compared to Baroque music. Exactly. Uh, And it will follow along your preconceptions of, you know, where harmonies should, you know, generally go to with voice leading and resolve. But occasionally there will be a big surprise that'll make you yeah, sit up and say, exactly. I wasn't waiting for that. Uh, and that's what I really like the, the little Those little of gems surprise. they really perk come up you in your yes, chair. And, I remember whoa, that too. You know, yeah. Didn't think they would go there. And it sounds really, fr- in our day, it would be a kind of fresh sort of, uh, you know, yeah. ha- harmonic diversion. But at that time, they probably thought of it as something very different. And, uh, you know, uh, so that's what I th- find the appeal in this music is sort of, uh, you know, it it goes along with the conceptions we have that were built up over the eras since that time, but, uh, how they felt about the music or what was standardized at the time is really different from anything we can relate to. And so trying to put yourself into that historical frame is really kind of fun. Uh, when you listen to yeah. these.
1: Yeah. That is, that is it's one of the things as a music educator, one of the most important things to, if you're teaching people about listening, how to listen to classical music, you really have to take into account like what era you're in, like what the understanding of harmony was at that time, because it changed and grew as time went on. And uh, here, uh, certain things aren't worked out yet. You know, we don't have these, uh, we're still writing in modes here, so we don't have the whole, uh, major minor, well, the harmonic system that came out, especially in the classical era. And even in the Baroque era, they had that, but there weren't any hierarchies of keys that they were really building on to make these big philosophical sort of statements that, uh, Mozart and Haydn started. And then Beethoven and their romantic era, you know, brought to a, you know, to a huge, um, level all right anyway disc one sacred music i'm not going to go through all the tracks here just to say that the ensemble just sings beautifully together they they're vibrato-less which wouldn't have existed there. vibrato is really a later um you know the shaking of the note you'll hear this when people sing mostly in opera in modern opera but this doesn't exist at this time and um the uh this the singers follow that um you know that understanding. They they sing in this vibrato way. Now, I really doubt the music would have sounded like it does on this album at the time. I doubt that any singers at the time, professional as they may have been, would have had the technique that uh, modern uh, singers have. So it's always kind of hard to You reproduce. never know. I mean, they
0: weren't listening to podcasts or playing with PlayStation or anything like
1: that. That's true. Yeah. But, but by the same token, they didn't have the... Uh, The understanding of the voice that we now have, you know, so it's kind of hard to kind of go back and think of how they would have sung, you know, anyway, it's it's irrelevant because what we're getting is like uh, our understanding, Mm -hmm. our modern scholastic understanding, scholarly understanding of what this music would have sounded like. Uh, there is a lot of cool medieval brass instruments on this um, this this first CD of sacred music. We don't get a full mass ever. We get a lot of glorias and credos. And we get one of my favorites, Ave Maria Stella. I love the opening melody of that. And uh, Teramo follows the uh, Gregorian chant melody perfectly in that setting. Droning bass voices and uh, pluck keyboard instrument on that one. It's really nice. Um, and uh, it's it's rather... It's, it's really just nice, glowing music, but not at the point of the, um, renaissance, not to the level of the renaissance. There are sack butts. So there's, so there are instruments in these a lot of times. Yes. And a lot of just fantastic dissonances. You no, know what I mean is dissonant. See what dissonance means though. If composers are listening to us, so I'm using this word wrong. A dissonance is something that's going to lead to a consonance. It implies that a consonance is coming. So it's kind of part of a system. But what I mean is something that just sounds harsh to the ear, is is what I want to say. Maybe I should just say that. Okay. This was an easy, pleasant listen. Disc one, by the way. I think you'll really enjoy it. It's a little more sort of less, well, the singing is, absolutely polished but the music itself is kind of has less of a sheen to it than later renaissance masses have so it's kind of it's it's appealing to the ear this way If we, if you grew up listening to rock music or something like that that kind of edge might you might really enjoy that sort of edge if you know kind of what renaissance singing sounds like okay moving on to cd2 sacred parodies and secular <laughs> models. now what this means is, okay, what is a parody? A parody mass oh, I hope I'm getting this right. I hope I'm because I I didn't I'm not looking this up now. But a parody mass is basically is a popular song of the day and that melody would be set to the uh would be used to set the uh mass words. So imagine you're <laughs> you're in church And you're hearing, like, the Gloria sung to the melody of, um, I don't know, what's a popular song today? Like some Taylor Swift song. I mean, that's basically what they're doing. That's interesting,
0: isn't it? Because, I mean, you know, the R&B guys were accused of taking the church music and putting, you know, the devil's lyrics to it. And this is sort of the other way around.
1: So, yeah. yeah. (laughs) They they took, I guess, the devil's music and put the church's lyrics to it. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they got people in the in the uh on into the the pews, the church benches. Okay, um, so we have a lot more um glories and credos here. There are a few um kind of secular models. We do hear a little bit of secular music on this one too. So basically, the way this whole um four CD set, this four hour set is, is we start up in heaven and we gradually get pulled down to earth more and more as the uh. As the music goes on, which I thought was a kind of a nice uh, touch. There are a few really beautiful, like, uh, instrumentals on this uh, disc, too. Yes. Um, there's an instrument called the clavis symbolum, which is really nice. It's, it's kind of harpsichord like, but I think it was earlier than that. I really have no idea what it looks like, but it's, it has, like, this plucked harpsichord kind of sound to it. We also hear medieval organs and uh, a medieval lutes, too. Um, I made a lot of notes about each of these things but let's move on cd3 this is where the action really starts all right at this point cd3 is secular music um oh by the way i should also mention on cds 1 and 2 the ensemble keep the project interesting by changing the orchestration from track to track like on one track you'll have a, uh, a lute or like a medieval lute continuo and another one there'll be an organ and then you'll have fiddles and lute and it'll it'll sort of keep changing to keep the ear engaged nice um planning by the ensemble there okay once we get to cd3 we're into secular music of the time now so so we're not really hearing lyrics about you know the church mass about god or anything like that anymore we're hearing more um they're really sort of troubadour type songs you know like oh i i am my my love is causing me pain by not being here, basically. That's what every song from this era seems to be about. Or oh, your eyes have wounded me and now I... I <laughs> now I feel this pain by their absence. That that sort of thing comes up a lot. Um, the first thing we hear on CD3 is um, it's called Cachando per gustar and uh, Ai Chinchi ai topi. And this is a medieval technique of setting two tones at once. And they sort of work against each other. Uh, the way this used to be done was um, in the um, oh the, the the technique that the isorhythm technique. Um, they would sort of just be set to the isorhythm, and they'd sort of like interlock at certain points. It, it was kind of interesting. Uh, sometimes the voices would hock it back and forth. Um, but this one, this particular one, um, it's it's a real come down from all the religious stuff it takes place in a market with people yelling out their wares and customers haggling and the italian singers on this they they really become actors at this point in the recording and really up until the end you hear a lot of the the energy the inflection of um just and just the plain old vulgarity of everyday life at this time in these songs um there's a the second track on disc three is nel cucul which is a uh, has an imitation of a cuckoo in it and uh it's cute and it's a bit vulgar the cuckoo imitations are really cute and this song is about trying to catch starlings um (laughs) these have interesting titles number three you can't hide love or (laughs) a cough okay um track four is an instrumental um it's a song from disc two played on the medieval lute so we get a um sort of lovely uh respite from all the uh it's not cacophony, but sort of the, uh, the energy of the first three tracks. And then we get a few troubadour songs and, uh, track seven, Nuda Non Era, She Was Not Naked, a sound about unrequited lust on the part of the man. And it's sung by a woman. This ensemble does that quite a lot. They'll take like, uh, the man's perspective and have a woman sing it. It's kind of a nice, um, a nice touch. All right, and um, let's go go ahead here to the 13th track, starting with a shawm, a very piercing sound, uh, which is played by Marco Domenichetti on this album. Uh, The full set of voices come in to sing the text in overlapping harmony, and the text is about a man seducing a woman, and he's pretty direct. Uh, There are some odd sounds, including a percussive booming wood clap at one point. I was really wondering what that was it was kind of just in the middle of the track um i rather like the way the rhythm came together after the clap cd4 is more secular music and we just go on with this um i just recommend really hearing these i don't want to go through it like all of it um they're all a little different but a lot of them have to do with um you know the the whole troubadour missing your love sort of um thing um, yeah, there's some, so, and again, there are a lot of vary, variations in, um, orchestration or instrumentation and also vocals. Like you'll have, um, some songs sung with sort of counterpoint. And then the next one will be like just straight chords sung by the voices. And then there'll be a solo voice. Then there'll be a male solo voice after the woman's solo voice it, and the duets. It's really beautifully uh, programmed. In sum, I like the high spirits that this Italian ensemble Italian ensemble, uh, takes to the two secular music discs. Um, this is a less relaxing list, uh, listen than the first two discs. Um, they sound like they're having fun, and yet they're so professional in their tonal accuracy and characterization. Uh, they make the music enjoyable, necess- which is necessary for music this old. So, um the first two discs the more sacred music a little more familiar a little laid back you can kind of relax to them get in that holy mood Discs 3 and 4 are really gonna kind of they you know they may get on your nerves a little bit but if you kind of have a look at what the texts are about and listen to the uh, vocalizations and the characterizations of the singers i think you'll really enjoy it anyway this is a real um th- this is a real find because we're not going to hear much music by this uh, composer i don't think and uh this it's one for all of you collectors out there. This is one for the library, and I think I'll go back to it occasionally. I really enjoyed this ensemble's performances, especially of the secular music, but it was all great. The sacred music was fantastic too, and the yeah, programming like was great. Mm. I
0: like this a lot. Uh, it's a lot of music, so don't try to yeah. listen to it all at once, or you'll. By the time you get into the second disc, you'll get zoned out and. Yeah I was <clears> just one disc
1: per day cuz they're yeah. so different than each other you know um,
0: but I mean rarely will you get to hear something you know this um old yeah. only, unless you're listening to Gregorian chant or something and uh, right you know not many people listen to that other uh, my That's uncle, all kind
1: of that's all kind of samey though yeah <laughs> so th- there's
0: a lot of variety
1: here and it's an
0: interesting kind of picture as to how music was you know developing in the eras before uh, we normally think of as uh, you know the foundations of Western classical music, uh, so that it's interesting in in that sense. And uh, I per, for me, I, I actually enjoyed disc one the most. Um, huh. I liked I, that. I liked it a lot too. It was kind of um, yeah. I liked uh, the as I said the kind of harmonic surprises. Uh, so cohesively, that one was my favorite. Uh, two and three, I thought um, the the vocal works had a lot of kind of overly similar character uh, in them, not being able to understand the, you know, the uh, A lot of times you lyrics. couldn't understand the situations yeah. either that yeah. the lyrics were presenting. Uh, That's you know, so mm. I did like, as you said, the programming and the sort of um, interspersed instrumental numbers was refreshing. And I did like the instrumental works on all of the discs. And there's a lot of variety there, uh, too. So just when you thought, okay, these vocals are, you know, kind of similar to the last one, there'll be an uh, instrumental track that will sort of cleanse your palate, so to speak, and uh, make you ready for something new. You want to split this up, but it's a pretty interesting listen. And there's some kind of diversions in harmony and uh, compositional right. direction that you won't expect and so you try to transport yourself through time put yourself in another place and yeah. there's still enough to hold on to that's familiar to our ears uh you know in this time and age we live in now so that's kind of endearing and makes this an interesting listen so yeah check it out it's unique
1: you know one of the things i learned actually i learned a little bit of um sort of historic i got a little bit of historical feeling from listening to this disc too um the secular music it's a bit the um sort of uh the feelings people put across they're a little uh old-fashioned these days i mean we still have a residue of them and you know this whole troubadour romantic feeling in our own societies but um not not as much as as they did it was just the way they lived so it does feel a little bit old and you you feel like you're being deposited into this kind of like world that um is just gone now and you're trying to work out how it works but in the sacred works um we're still you know if you're if you know th- this is the thing about religion is it it ties us to the distant past and uh so you're still hearing settings of these same words today and we have that in common with the past and that's really the i feel like one of the values of religion and we kind of we we take we te- these days we tend to be throwing it away and I think it's really valuable for that and tying us to our the past and to the people who were you know in the same religion as we were way back then so I got I got that bit of a sense of that from the first two discs as well mm. okay I just wanted to say that anyway You know, re- religion lasts uh, m- you know you know nor you know behavior patterns tend to change <laughs> rather more rapidly now than ever before Alright, on to our second album in the classical, um, uh, of my classical choices this year. This is a pianist I really love, uh, Italian pianist Beatrice Rana. So I have two Italians today. How about that? That was, that was not intentional. Okay, Beatrice Arana, and uh she's playing Chopin on this one, so a big favorite of a lot of uh, classical music fans, especially piano fans. Uh she plays twelve etudes, opus twenty-five. That is the second set of etudes that Chopin uh composed. There's also an Opus ten set that's probably more famous. Um uh, some of these are famous too. And then she plays the four scherzi also, scherzo one through four. Um I don't spend a lot of time listening to recordings of Chopin's music, even though I love it, because I played the piano when I was younger. I never went to school for it, but I took private lessons and all that. And of course, I played and muddled through a lot of, uh, I played some of Chopin's shorter works and muddled through some of the longer ones. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, they're very, very familiar to me, so I kind of feel like I do with, like, say, like Beatles recordings. I'm sort of like, oh, I've heard these so many times, or you know, I just don't want to hear it again. But th- I love this pianist. And I really had to hear this set, and-, and I hadn't heard any of these works in a while—the twelve etudes or these or these scherzi. Um, by the way, my personal favorite recording of the four scherzi or scherzos, if you want to say it that way, is by Stephen Hough, my favorite pianist. Um, and that is still the case, but we'll get to that. Uh, this recording made me happy to hear them all again. Okay. Um, I think hearing all these Chopin, like, etudes, like, I played, like, two of these. And, um, they kind of, it's weird when I hear, like, them being played, it it brings back memories of me playing them. And that's sort of an extra dimension that kind of makes it harder for me to be a critic (laughs) or <laughs> to talk about the uh the works the very first one is a good example uh, number one in a flat um this is the uh, harp one it's sort of like a wrist exercise um you're kind of like you're playing this melody and um th- the wrists are moving to play all the arpeggios that kind of sounds like a, an arpeggiated harp sort of um So, Beatrice Arana we hear right away is an amazing technician, I already knew this from her previous recordings. Um, This piece comes across as very musical despite the technique required. The melody is very clear, and um, yeah, okay, it's it's played very romantically, there's a bit of rubato in there, and the expression is so gentle that you don't realize how difficult this is to play. All the etudes are pretty difficult, some are harder than others, but... There you go. Then we go to number two in F minor. This has fleet, scale, and arpeggio figures and Rana brings out the musicality of a piece that can sound like an exercise in some hands like mine, although I never played this one. Um, She has fluctuating dynamics too. This is another thing she does throughout these etudes, like she'll kind of sort of crescendo and decrescendo very gently. It's sort of a nice... um, uh, way of kind of emphasizing that this is music and not just an exercise Uh, this is a beautiful and gentle performance of number two opus 25 number three an F major sounds like a horse galloping rhythm Um, and uh, that's captivating in Rana's hands number four an A minor alternating hands playing chords Um, Rana accentuates the right hand and allows the left to be an echo or a springboard it's a nice effect especially given the technique that's required to play these. It's, it's hard to get expression out of something this difficult. There are much more difficult piano pieces than these, I'm aware, but um, this is what started all that. Okay, A two number five in E minor. This one kind of glumps in the. I actually played this one too. This is the other one I played. Um, this one glumps in the outer sections and has a gorgeous middle section with figuration in the right hand, and the melodies in the bass. It kind of reminds me of the uh, Fantasy Impromptu, and if you live in Japan like we do, like every. Uh, Jep- Japanese girl who's a piano student has played that piece I've heard it a million times here does that, okay, mean, the, it,
0: does that mean you know a million girls or
1: I think I might know a million girls me uh, and Elvis both <laughs> okay um, but this one's kind of similar to that one uh, she takes a long pause before the beautiful middle section as if to separate the kind of like more kind of I don't want to say ugly but it's it's not ugly it's kind of like just sort of Lumpy, the beginning and the end, and then the middle section is kind of like it really is like the cream in the middle of the Oreo cookie instead of, uh, it's really nice. She shapes this with a lot of rubato and plays in the romantic style. The melody comes across well, but there are other interpretations that I prefer. Uh, this she plays with a lot of rubato in this one. I liked it. I don't want, I'm not going to complain about it. It's amazing technique, of course, and she's very, very expressive. Um, it's, it's almost like, yeah, she's Italian. Italians, sort of like the French, have this sense of like, you know, color in the of the instruments. Italians have this innate sense of melody, and they really they're really fantastic at playing these legato melodies. And she's a, a good example of that. Uh, number six, um, in G sharp minor, um, this one she goes into without a pause from the previous one. Another sort of uh, unusual interpretational move. Um, This one has fierce trills in the right hand, and they dissipate into figuration that runs up the piano. Um, There's not much melody in this. The musical interest is in the left hand, but you wind up listening to the amazing figuration, which actually in this case is louder. She plays, she really accentuates the figuration in this one. Number seven in C sharp minor. This is a slow and somber etude. Um, The melody's in the bass, Uh, it gains in drama towards the middle with a busy left hand playing uh again furious scales i think i like that word uh the piece quietens again barely barely audible at times she uses a wide dynamic range she can play very quietly without losing the quality of her tone again that's pretty amazing too uh i think this one's more of a study on touching the keys it's not quite a toccata but it's kind of like on weight and you know the weight you give to the keys number eight is in D flat and this one has a familiar Chopin figuration Uh, it has alternating thirds as the chief difficulty (laughs) that was always something I can never get there's something about the the bones of the hand I don't know how pianists do it maybe one day someone will explain it to me I can never get thirds Uh, number nine in G flat staccato touch in this one sounds a bit circusy and cheerful in Rana's hands and it's always beautiful to judge balance between the hands and overall volume Number 10 in B minor. Dramatic opening that I've heard played with more fire than here. She's not really going for like real unbridled passion in this particular work. Um, So she really can't help bringing out the melodic elements in even the most technical pieces. And this piece has a quiet middle section. I think it uses sixths. I'm not really sure. I didn't get my score out. The first section comes back at the end. So this is like a... Uh, ABA sort of form, and she gets the appropriate passion and fire, but it's not as extreme as some I've heard, and maybe that's a good thing. Um, I can't really say. And her sense of melody really triumphs in this piece. Number 11 in A minor starts like a church work with chords, and then goes into a ferocious right-hand figuration with a theme in the left hand. Again, the fluctuating dynamics, she makes the work musical and intriguing. And finally, the last etude is number 12 in C minor, and this starts uh, ferociously. The bass notes are the theme, and the right hand plays fleet figuration. It's all fantastic playing. Uh, The fire is there, and she can't not make this piece sound melodic, which is welcome. So she's a very musical player, and I really enjoyed that. Now, to be honest, when I go through, like, 12 Chopin etudes, you know, they're they're all kind of exercises showing technique and uh it's kind of a lot of the same thing but she made this pretty interesting i i did enjoy these uh there was a lot of um th- there were a lot of sort of like i said crescendo decrescendo sort of rubato playing meaning like kind of stretching out the the rhythm a bit you know before new chords come and she made them interesting now the next four pieces the four scherzi scherzo uh or scherzos if you prefer um are more sort of um ah musical isn't the word but they're more expressive let's say than the etudes they're really just sort of uh big pieces and uh let's talk about these um scherzo number one in b minor and this is some music with some variety in it now uh this um scherzo starts out with fleet figuration Um, Rana plays it clearly and very fast. I've always heard something a bit uh, demented in the opening section of this work, and I hear it again here. Uh, Maybe it's the insistent bass note that's repeated after the runs, and the constant stops and pauses. It kind of sounds, there's something like a little unhinged about the uh, opening of this. It's not an easy work to put across, and again, now I'm going to uh, my Stephen Huff recording of this. These four works Stephen Huff also recorded, and I like his recordings a lot, and I, pr- I really prefer him, although I do like Beatrice Rana in this too. She's a pianist who has her own way of playing things. I guess all pianists do, but she's got something really unique about her, so it's she's always going to make it hers. I'm, I'm going to say something a little bit about that at the end. Um, there's acquired a lyrical section that acts as the work's middle section, and it sounds like she's using a, a mute on this, like the una corda pedal, but I can't really tell. And the accompanying section repeats at the end. Scherzo number two is a big favorite among pianists. A lot of piano students play this one. Um, this is in B flat minor, Opus 31. Um, this has the caressing, like arpeggiated chords, followed by this outburst of uh, octaves. Um, and it's really hard to kind of judge the, um, you know, the... It's kind of hard to know how to interpret that. Um, in this, Rana interprets this by making the opening arpeggiated uh, chords sound kind of like a hiccup. And she plays them pretty quickly. Um, it's hard to get the balance of this. I liked her approach here, but I... But I, of course, I would, because I like her. Uh, it's hard to know how to judge this piece, but she made some good decisions... On note lengths and silences, there's a lot of silence. There are a lot of pauses in this piece. The melodic parts are quiet yet fully audible over the quiet um, bed of figuration laid down by the left hand. In the repeat of the opening material, there are some interpretational differences. Always a sign of a probing mind at work. You know, meaning from differences from other performances I've heard. They all keep the ear and mind engaged. Uh, The middle section is played very quietly. I actually had to turn this up. It was like leaning into it. I had uh, Rana make sure that the similarities with the opening material register. um, And she plays the figuration with the melody and the bass very fast. People have their preferences in works as often played as these. And I thought the bass melody was too fast, personally. Although it loses none of its profile and appeal in Rana's hands. She's expressive throughout. Uh, In fact, I thought the ending was too much on the fast side, although it's all very exciting. And that's, I guess, what counts. Uh, Scherzo number three, very quickly. This is the shortest of the scherzi at eight minutes, and Rana navigates the changing moods well. This one has uh, the gorgeous section where fragments of melody are interrupted by figuration raining down in the right hand. You may have heard this. Difficult to play. Scherzo number four, the last uh, work on the disc, In E major, opus 54, this has a lot of mood changes, and Rana excels at these. It's an element of her playing that I've come to appreciate, particularly in these four scherzi. The quieter slow section starts at four minutes in, and again, she's very quiet here, while allowing the melody to fully register. It sounds like she's going for something hypnotic. The melody in the slow section is played very slowly and tentatively when resumed after a change of material in the work center. And we get a repeat of the opening material, a slight coda, and then we're done. Okay, you might have noticed by the uh, by the things I was saying that she kind of takes this sort of unique approach and the problem... well, it's not a problem. The problem is this music has been played so many times by like so many pianists and it's not open to all that much interpretation, unlike say box music, which is... Um, it has as many interpretations to it as players. Because you can really do almost anything you want so I, I feel kind of odd with music like this there's a certain way I like to hear it played and it's not she plays it that way a little bit but not completely I liked her individuality in this um, I like the program with the technical pieces contrasting with the more varied scherzi, which it was a nice uh, idea to separate this program in half that way um, She's uh, Rana plays these very well throughout. I'm still gonna to turn to Stephen Huff for the scherzos, the scherzi though. And I enjoyed this a lot, and I'll listen to it more. I feel like I didn't really get everything that was coming across, I've only heard it twice. Um, so I'm gonna to have to hear this again, I think. But with with um, Chopin's music, you know, this I, I kind of have this it's it's hard to let go of the way I want it to sound. So I wouldn't say this is my favorite uh, performance of these. I like the Stephen Huff Scherzi better. The Etudes, I don't really have a favorite, so I'll take these. This is great. I liked her playing of the Scherzi as well, though. So this is a recommended, um, but it it might uh, surprise you a little bit if you like your Chopin a certain way. It's
0: definitely worth a listen. Uh, I enjoyed her playing a lot. She has a masterful technique.
1: Yeah, for her fantastic. young
0: age uh i also noticed that she paid uh a lot of attention to drawing out the dynamic contrasts.
1: yes and um a little that, too much uh, i thought though i don't know could
0: be a bit much um mm. in terms of the overall arc of things um there's you know some of these have uh Amazing changes in tempo and things going on in them, but she holds it together really well, yeah. especially. I thought, um, uh, number 13, uh, uh track. So the first scherzo, uh, number one in B minor, the, this one has like uh, a lot of changes and uh, the tempo changes and things, and the rapid uh, playing doesn't, uh, phase her at all. She comes through those, uh, uh you know, without, uh, Sort of, uh, how can I say, affecting what comes next? She's always like mm. not ready for what what's coming on.
1: Uh, in, in yeah, the she next, can do the uh, split things. second changes of yeah. mood too. She really makes them register. Um,
0: so technique is flawless, and uh, the way she plays, I just like you say, if if you are going to compare it to Stephen Huff, uh, she doesn't have the overall sense of polish. Uh, okay I know what I mean by that you know, you, know, you know what I'm saying uh yeah when you just listen to the, the overall performance uh like that but I do admire her passion uh she really digs in in the right places uh where I felt like you know in in the uh, you know these kind of pieces there's uh in Chopin in general there's places mm. where there's just you know a lot of emotional excitement she really draws that out. Uh, really well uh, and there's no fault in her uh, technique and the tempos are impressive just maybe uh, kind of total refinement uh, compared to mm-hmm. I cough. but she's very well, young
1: and now, uh, also she is a she is a refined player but oh, she's certainly, just yeah. after something else I think you yeah. know is what it comes down to but I really do prefer that sort of passionate refinement it's sort of like a weird balance and, right. and I think Stephen Hough gets that. I think he's really excellent at this music. Yeah.
0: So I mean, like you say, it's. I don't want to be too critical of that because these are so, uh, you know, so often recorded works, uh, mm-hmm. as you say. That's really uh, but, my
1: big issue with them is that yeah, because you know, every pianist there is plays Yeah, them, all piano know? players
0: knows them. But I, I was really mm-hmm. impressed with uh, her technique and her passion. And uh, yeah, I don't know, I. I haven't listened to a lot of her other recordings, so I don't know like what her oh. know, main thing well, is, you, go- is I uh, know
1: you and I are big fans of the uh second Prokofiev piano concerto. Right. And she played that and it's really great. Although I do prefer Bavozet in that, but she's really great in it as well. Yeah,
0: Bavozet really made that one come alive to me. For uh, me too, yeah. For, I didn't really pay attention to it her before here. I heard
1: that Bavozet um, recording. I, I so you know. I'll
0: listen to her recording of that. I I mean I think Yeah,
1: worth hearing. Yeah. I
0: think she has uh all the technical abilities and a real passion and so uh i mean it's not fair to compare her to you know uh more seasoned and older uh players uh, on the same material but i would say since she shows uh, a lot of real promise and I, i'd like to hear you know what she does in the future from here uh, yeah she's someone i'm
1: definitely tracking and have been already she's already played some really big works like she recorded yeah. the goldberg variations which I think, uh, you know, at her young age might be uh, a little too early for that. But, I mean, she did them really well. But it'll be interesting to hear. I'm sure she'll record them again 20, 25 years down the road. Yeah. If I'm still alive, and still maybe I'll be able to yeah, hear those. You'll know? be around. What, yeah. 20 years from now? Yeah, most likely, let's say. Unless, unless some, we might need hearing happens. aids
0: by then, but we'll be around.
1: Well, that won't be, that won't be fun. <laughs> <You know>? What? <laughs> I had a. I was talking to this um, woman about how I told her how I wanted to live to be 100. And she said to me something. She really surprised me. Like, what, what kind of 100 do you want to be? Like, you don't want to be losing your eyesight or your ears or having your faculties go, you know? And I'm like, yeah, that's right. I mean, just to be 100, just to be this – guy sitting in a chair I mean if if my eyes and ears hold up it'll be fantastic because I because I love music and I love kind of you know movies reading books things like that so um, yeah I certainly so hope these things last what
0: kind of, st- of 100 I can think of yeah. a few a few adjectives but we I don't want to lose our clean rating on uh, the podcast so I will just <laughs> you know,
1: lascivious does that pass the test <laughs> I, I don't know that that's necessary at that age I think uh, you know I think just seeing the sunrise is an exciting thing once you Could once be. you reach there, you know, kind of, yeah, because you, know, you you kind of you're counting days as opposed to years. I think by that point, if you're a hundred, as long, long know, as we get we'll back, see.
0: we'll get back more out of the system than we paid and into it. I'll if be anyone happy.
1: listening is a hundred years old, write to us and let us know.
0: That's right. We'll dedicate, <laughs> okay? it, we'll dedicate uh, something to you.
1: Yeah. yeah. All right. Now the last and probably most exciting recording that we did. Although, I don't know. This, the Teramo was kind of, you know, this is a big release, let's say. Mm. But I thought this was the most exciting recording that we heard this week. This is a Stephen Isserlis British solo cello music on the Hyperion label. Oh, by the way, did I mention that uh, so I keep forgetting this bit. Beatrice, Beatrice Rana Chopin, was on the Warner Classics label. Right. And a- we, should anyway, say, we should say with yeah. this
0: one, um, you won't find this one uh, in the uh, playlist Or links for it, because Hyperion does not uh, allow their music to be streamed, Uh, Hmm. but you can check out the samples on uh, their own webpage, and also I'll put up the Presto music uh, link for it, Uh, but you won't uh, get the complete tracks on streaming.
1: uh, Yeah, I don't want to say that's a real shame that they don't put this on streaming, because this music, uh, Hyperion is one of the better, well there are a lot of great labels out there, but they're one of my favorite labels, they have a lot of my favorite pianists on on this label and uh people just can't hear it you can only hear samples you have to buy the recording to hear it i hope they kind of work something out you know they they you know they're a small label and they um do deserve to uh, be recompensed for the great music that they release but i really hope that this music is available i want everybody to hear it because i think it's great Anyway, Stephen Isserlis, he's a cellist, British solo cello music. He might be, he's one of the best cellists in the world, and he's definitely my favorite. So up there with Stephen Hough on the piano, they often appear together. Another thing about Isserlis is that he's an excellent writer on classical music as well. And he wrote the uh, Very Illuminating Booklet Notes, uh, which you can read on the Hyperion website, by the way, as well as the CD if you buy it. Um, I actually absolutely recommend you do that. He's, um, he's really engaging. He's, uh, he's got this, he's got a lot of great stories to tell as well. I'm going to be referring to those booklet notes quite often, um, in the, what I'm going to say about this. So, uh, if, if it sounds familiar, um, please forgive me because <laughs> he knows a lot more about this music than I do, obviously. All right. So we start, um. Okay, it's solo cello music, um, as has been so often the case in the last two years, this project was the result of the lockdown. okay so uh, there there was uh, Mr. Isolus in his uh, house or apartment wherever he lives, looking at some old scores for solo cello. And um, the way this uh, program seems to uh, go is from heavy to light. He really starts with some pretty heavy works and then uh, midway through it just sort of like goes into something a little more lighter and more Baroque sounding. We'll get to that in a moment. Let's start with the heavy. Uh, the first um, two works first of all we got a little introductory piece by uh, Benjamin Britton uh, called Tama Sasher from 1976 the year of Britten's death. Um, this was written for Paul Sasher's birthday. Uh, Paul Sasher was a S-A-C-H-E-R? Sacher. I don't know how to say it. I hope I'm saying it right. I think it's, it's a German pronunciation. Sacher was a Swiss conductor and also a great patron of 20th century music and composers. And he commissioned many of the 20th century's greatest works. Um, this particular piece of uh, Britain's was written at Heinz Holliger's suggestion. Um, he got uh, the um, cellist, the Misislav Rostoprovich the Russian the Russian cellist to uh, and to get various composers to provide Sasha with a special gift, and some of the composers that uh, acquiesced were uh, Dutille, Luduslawski, Holliger himself who plays the uh, recorder, uh, Henze, Berio, Pierre Boulez, oh boy, and uh, Benjamin Britten. And by this time, Britten was too frail to compose a whole set of variations, so he wrote just this theme. As a basis for other composers, you know, sort of like Verdi did with the uh, the Requiem. He composed one movement, and he wanted the other composers to uh, compose the other movements, and I think they did. But Verdi wound up running, writing an entire Requiem by himself. In this case, the other composers didn't uh, follow through, so we just we only have the theme. I wouldn't um, be happy
0: if I received this one myself. But
1: it was kind of yeah, it was kind of a hard one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but not only yeah, but it's for it's for this guy's birthday, you know. Whatever, you know. guess. Uh, the theme itself starts with powerful statements, then gets into some throaty sawing on the cello. It feels very fragmentary to me. Um Isos's, Isos's tone has a lot of presence. He especially gets the bass notes to bite. It's a pretty powerful thing. And we really it's a really powerful piece, and we really get a sense of just how great a is he's got this gigantic presence and tone when he plays if you ever hear him speak though he's very kind of like humble you see he's like some sort of the opposite of his playing in person it's kind of funny maybe not the opposite but he's a lot more understated than his tremendous tone is i i really just i love his playing um the next piece is probably the biggest piece on this album, Benjamin Britten's Cello Suite No. 3, Opus 87, composed in 1971. This was written for his friend, the cellist, Misislav Rostropovich. Um, and uh, the suite is based on four Russian themes which range in mood from poignant to tragic. This is a pretty dark work. Uh, Rostropovich rather lived all of those moods from poignant to tragic um, after the work was completed and before he finally gave the premiere three years later in 1974 through really no fault of his own or depending on how you think about it in 1970 Rostropovich had written an open letter protesting the Soviet authorities treatment of the writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn you might remember him Uh, I remember having to read his uh, One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, when I was in high school. Can you believe it? <laughs> anyway, as a result of this open letter, Rostropovich himself fell into disgrace with the authorities. He was allowed to perform in the Soviet Union, but not abroad, and was, of course, humiliated at every opportunity. The final humiliation was to dismiss him and force him into exile, which to me sounds like a good thing. I don't know, <laughs> g- given this uh, this regime, which gave Rostropovich the opportunity to premiere the work at the Aldeburg Festival in England in 1974. Critics have said that this suite is a reflection of Rostropovich's dangerous situation, which Isserlis says may be partly true, but he thinks, Isserlis, thinks that the entire work is more a universal meditation on death, and I agree with him, actually. Um, The four themes used in this are the kontaktion, kontakion, from the Orthodox Mass for the Dead, so the Russian church. The other three themes come from folk song arrangements made by Tchaikovsky, and all are concerned with mortality, so it's pretty much a good clue as to what this work is about. Um, the other three works are Mournful Song, Under the Little Apple Tree, Street Song, The Gray Eagle, and these both of these works feature grieving lovers. And the last work, Autumn, speaks of fallen leaves in the cold wind, and it's pretty depressing. Uh, Tchaikovsky set this one for children's voices, Autumn. But uh, we're going to hear, well, we'll get to that soon. Okay, this work is in, one of the things that makes this work a little difficult too, although it's it has a great effect, it's in reverse variation form. That means we hear all the variations on the themes before we hear the actual themes themselves at the end. So you're really not aware that, um, unless you've read about the piece beforehand, that these um, works are based on these, these themes from these Russian folk songs until you actually hear them at the very end of the piece. Um, and it has a, a big effect. Uh, okay, I'm going to include a lot of Iserlis's, um comments on this because he's so good in the booklet about this. Okay, the first movement is Introduzione. Uh, it starts with the lowest note on the cello played pizzicatos. So it's an open C. Um, we hear it repeated throughout the introduction, and it underpins a melodic line derived from the Orthodox chant called Kontakion, an Orthodox chant for the dead, which is uh, known as uh, grant repose together with the saints in English. It's in the English hymnal in, under that name. Okay, again, this is reverse variations form. We don't hear the theme in its original form until the very last movement. Uh, Isolus remarks that in Britain's suite, it sounds like one priest and then two are intoning a prayer for the departed. To the accompaniment of funeral bells, which is the repeating bass note. The uh, theme is indeed sad and melodically prayerful, like melisma. Third, okay, next we come to the Marcha Allegro. This is based on the folk song, The Grey Eagle. Um, In a contrast with the chant, uh, this uses a rhythm that sends the bow skittering across a string. And uh, the theme sounds very abstract here. It's a gorgeous full recording, and the presence that Assurlus achieves is impressive. He sounds gigantic on this recording, and there are quiet passages in the upper register separating the lowest strings. This leads into the canto, based on the folk song Under the Little Apple Tree. List, uh comments that this sounds like gentle sighs. I heard it is very quietly played until the end and it crescendos into a bit of passion and then recedes again. I guess the sighs analogy is quite good. And then we get to a barcarola. A barcarola is kind of a Venetian boat song. It's in 6 8 and it has those kind of like this up and down kind of a wave sort of feeling to it this is based on the folk song autumn and it sounds um a bit like a tribute to bach's first cello suite if uh, bach's cello suite were on the waves in venice <laughs> um uh, the famous first movement prelude um the the first movement prelude of the first cello suite it it has a boat rocking on the waves feeling to it um the melody is in the highest notes and it suddenly speeds up at the end and becomes dramatic and then suddenly quiets for The Dialogo. Okay, at this point, we've heard variations on all four of the folk songs used in this piece. But now in the Dialogo, it's going to get more complicated. Um, The Dialogo combines aggressive fragments from the Gray Eagle and calm pizzicato answers stemming from Grant Repose. This is the big, the church theme for the Mass from the Dead. Uh, Isois thinks this dialogue was suggested by Mussorgsky's Samuel Goldberg and Schmoyle movement from Pictures of an Exhibition. Um, I'm not so... I don't really know about that. Halfway through, it is as if the first, first voice resigns itself to the inescapable reality of death. It starts with angry protests, then the rhythmic patterns fade into soft floating down to earth. A crescendo on one note leads to the fuga, which is a fugue. Um, Based on Autumn, the um, folks on Autumn, this sounds like a pretty loose fugue to me. The themes repeating in other voices are are at great distances away, so it's not really a very formal fugue. It doesn't have the profile of a fugue, but it comes across powerfully. Next, recitativo, which is kind of a spoken... um, section so the cello is going to imitate like a spoken voice. This one has disjointed splinters of musical material sounded briefly before flitting away into the shadows. Those are all uh, Isserlis's words from the booklet by the way. Splinters is a good word. Uh, The lines fly off into the darkness. At the end we hear some harmonics. This gains energy in the last 10 seconds and leads to the moto perpetuo movement. This has, again, this is Iserlis writing. Eerie atmosphere carries over to this movement, which reminds Iserlis of the last movement of Chopin's Wind Howling Through the Graves, fourth movement of his second piano sonata. So if anybody knows that work, this is a little uh, similar to that. I, I myself hear the resemblance, especially at the beginning. Uh, next comes a Passacaglia. Um, this is the most substantial movement. It's a set of uh, variations over a, re- a repeating bass, although I couldn't follow the repeating bass. I think it's just outlined. Um, the theme is from Grant Repose, or the Contakion again. Its cold purpose is stated in the lower reaches of the cello, while the upper voice weeps and pleads in falling semitones. Okay, credit where credit is good. That's Those are Isseless' words. Intensity develops. The upper voice lets forth a melodious cry of anguish. Then we hear the four themes themselves afterwards Um, now this is kind of a magical moment Um, once we hear the um, the uh, say cry of anguish in the upper voice we get to the uh, actual folk songs themselves unadorned with any variations and there's a there's there's such a simplicity and such a Russian-ness to them that we feel sort of released from all this weight that we got from the work up to this point so far. It's a magical moment. Uh, so if you can follow all that went before, the, you're really in for a real treat here if you don't know this work. Uh, we f- first hear the mournful song, Under the Little Apple Tree, a very lyrical and mournful melody. Um, it's almost like we're hearing the actual form, that all the shadows that came before it, the illusion was based on so now you're getting sort of the reality in a way that's the way i felt um it's like the shock of reality or some truth is being revealed to us in these in these next four movements uh the next comes autumn uh, very russian sounding and its heaviness and insistence on falling on the beats the fir- the accents come on the first syllable sort of like in the russian language uh the street song the gray eagle very brief rather nonchalant song and then we get the big um section for the Mass from the Dead, Grant repose together with the Saints. This ends on the cello's lowest, darkest note, C major, as it began. We're back at the beginning again. Um, It's heavy sounding, mostly played in the lower register of the cello, and it moves to the upper register after the first statement, and sounds more plaintive when it gets up there. Anyway, beautiful, very powerful work. Um, Worth getting to know, if you've never heard it before. Tracks 15 through 18 um, present the... uh, Well, tracks 15 through 17 present the uh, folk songs used in the um, cello suite as Tchaikovsky set them. So we hear this with the piano accompaniment. Uh, The pianist is uh, Mishka Rushdie Momin on this, and um, the presence of the piano is helpful here because it separates um, these works from the suite, and also we hear the harmony now. We're not hearing the cello's suggestion of the harmony only. Um, next comes Autumn, and uh, Street Song is next. And then we get the Kontakion. Uh, this one is a multi-track version of the Grant Repose uh, melody in, an, in the adaptation used by Britain in the Suite, which he found in the English hymnal. Um, it's pretty long, at 4 minutes and 31 seconds. Um, so Isserlis multi-tracked himself for this. Um, it sounds like a passionate Russian church piece here with Iso imitating choir voices in his performance okay at this point, we're turning around to something a little lighter. first, we get um William Walton theme for a prince. this was written for prince charles's twenty first birthday way back in nineteen sixty nine Can you imagine Prince charles is twenty one years old jeez i th- I feel like he was born sixty anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway Walton, I guess I don't know I was only four years old then, so what do I know anyway, Walton seems to have intended this um melody to be uh material for sets of variations by other composers, but again, <laughs> they didn't take up the offer, so we just have this theme uh. Isserlis, by the way, did commission a work by Robert Saxton based on this theme, and uh, Saxton came through. It's called Sonata on a Theme of William Walton, and Isserlis recommends that you hear it. I haven't heard it. Maybe I'll give it a listen one day. It's pretty brief, this um theme, at 1 minute 28 seconds. Uh, Prince Charles' preferred instruments are apparently the cello and the trumpet. Oh, you can get a, a royal audience one day, Russ. Mm-hmm. All right, All right. Just this don't the cello. You're going to play the cello? Uh, play the cello? Yeah. <laughs> this piece <laughs> is lyrical and a bit dark. Next, we get William Walton's Passacaglia. Again, Passacaglia is a set of variations over a repeating bass line. Um, we don't really hear the repeating bass line in this. I think it might just be outlined. I actually found this a little hard to follow. Um this is a theme with nine variations uh the the first six grow in intensity the seventh is more lyrical and then the energy resumes and momentum builds to the end um i thought the the actual baseline was sort of hard to remember you just when you read the word passacaglia, you just have to assume it's there i guess i don't think the composer is lying to you um yeah, I think uh, I missed the handoff to the first variation in this. I did catch the uh, calm seventh variation around the four minute and 30 second mark. And then it gets uh, more aggressive to the end. This work has a lot of electricity, at least in this performance, and especially towards the end. It ends with a double-stopped pizzicato, which I thought was kind of cool. The next work is really odd. This We're getting into the lighter part of the program here. By John Gardner lived 1917 to 2011. This is called Caranto Pizzicato. And uh, Walton's Passacaglia is a good springboard for the rest of the program because the Passacaglia really is a Baroque era sort of a uh, form. Um, the the Passacaglia recalls past eras as imagined by twentieth the 20th century. This particular work by John Gardner, the Caranto Pizzicato, is inspired by Elizabethan lute music or lute as my lute my inortentive teacher <laughs> said <laughs> um, uh, so this is the renaissance era before the baroque so John Dowland's era we could say Okay, um, this was the uh, central movement of Gardner's partita for solo cello opus 98 composed in 1968 so it's only one movement of a bigger work it's all pizzicato. this is crazy um it's it sounds really hard to play, but it is engaging it's really uh, interesting. It's got a pretty opening and it's impressive that we're getting a m- melodic line out of this um continued technique i mean he's playing all pizzicato in the bass and the accompaniment and he's, he's got a he's got a bass line and a melodic line going at the same time um There is a lute quality to this a lute quality, and this piece really sounded hard to perform to me and yet it's kind of a light piece okay the other major piece on this um this um album is the this piece by frank merrick in its first ever recording on a professional label its first ever professional recording let's say i think is so in the booklet note mentions that he recorded it before in his own sort of setup but that recording has been lost. He says probably a good thing because he was very young when he made it. Um, I, I'm i sure he was great then, too. Anyway, this is called Sweet in the 18th Century Style. Uh, we don't have a composition date for this work because Merrick didn't remember writing it. <laughs> Boy. He's, he was a bit of an eccentric, uh, according to Isolus's notes. We do know it was written before 1935, though, because the title page says that the uh, the fingering, the finger positions, were noted down in the score, and the score was edited by the cellist W. E. Whitehouse, and he died in 1935, so it had to be written before that, or or that year. Uh, the movements ranged from cheeky to poignant. In tone, so it's kinda of like the other end of like what Britain was writing in. They they meet it poignant. Um, so this is a lighter work. Uh, it kind of, I guess it sort of balances the darkness of the Britain work out. This this is a piece about life, about dance and uh, things like that. So it's kinda of, it's a nice uh, counterbalance. Um let me see here. Let's get into the piece. It starts with a rather long ritornelle. A ritornello in the uh, Baroque era is a theme and then it goes off to something else and comes back sort of like a rondo in a way but the the main kind of theme keeps coming back is the main point and that's what happens here. Um, this starts out like the first Bach uh, solo violin out if you know with that uh, big double stopped uh, like bass note notes and then like the melody is on top of that. Um, and we get so in this piece we get various episodes framed by the opening this movement lasts a long time at 7 minutes and 43 seconds it sounds pretty demanding for like one person to play all of this mm-hmm. I thought to myself though one of the reassuring things about Baroque music is the constant return to the tonic chord and uh, we never stay on it long in Baroque music though I think that's why 20th century composers uh, looked back to this style so often Okay, I think it's just a reassuring style in a time that was very not reassuring as is the time we're living in now so again I recommend to listeners go back to the Baroque it's very reassuring next movement is a Quran these are all dance names now at this point um, this uh, the Quran has a nice bounce to it it's kind of a bullion sounding uh, this work may as well be called the sweet in the Bach style. He called it sweet in the Baroque style, Merrick. But it's—I think it's really taking after Bach in this case. It sounds like—it doesn't sound like him, but it just kind of—it it brings him to mind, shall we say? Next, Sarabande, slow dance. This has a gravitas despite the light touch Isserlis is using, or maybe even because of it. It's got a very appealing melody, and there's a real teardrop in Isolus's light touch in the quieter sections. Listen for that. Um, this movement is very touching. All these movements are at around four minutes long, and they're noticeably longer than the Baroque works they're emulating. This 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 work seemed to go on for a long time, although I did enjoy it. Okay, next we have uh, Gavatz 1 and 2. This has a strutting theme in the middle section, and it goes into something more pastoral in the middle, with the pedal point bass sounding like a musette. A musette is kind of like a French bagpipe. It's a lot lighter sounding than a Scottish bagpipe. And it really recalls the countryside when you hear it. It's it just it's like a continuing bass line. Um this sounds like yeah, it sounds like a country dance. Um next week comes a Siciliano. Siciliano rhythm is unmistakable at the opening. Bum 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 it's like it's like the thir- third and the first beat of a three um this has a pretty standard melody and the melody develops in a very pretty appealing lilt as it goes into its climax i really enjoyed that this goes on for quite a while though It's six minutes and eight seconds uh the composer is clearly writing this for himself and not thinking of any audience i think he's really enjoying himself it is good though but it goes on for a really long time Next come the uh, Borets, 1 and 2, similar in profile to the Gavats. Uh, The B sections of this movement have long, winding scalar figures. Boré 2 is, in fact, entirely scalar figures. Next we have an Air, very brief, at 56 seconds. It's a melody with the harmony filled out in the lower register a little bit. Uh, makes its poignant point very quickly. It's well-shaped, and it just stops with no repeat. I mean, you expect a repeat, but we don't get that. And it feels odd for that reason. Last, we get the traditional ending to a uh, Baroque suite, the Jig. Um, this has a dancy Jig rhythm, of course, with all sorts of leaps from the lower to the upper register. Very impressive playing by Isserlis on this, and the rhythm is infectious, as Jig rhythms tend to be. I think it's longer than it needs to be really i think this whole suite has maybe too 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 many movements but i liked it i thought it was it was uh, all of them are enjoyable it's just very i thought it was just a little longer than it needed to be it's all very appealing though finally we end with a contemporary composer um thomas addis and this work is called sola written in the year 2000 technically it's a 21st century work unless you count 2001 as being the beginning of the um 21st century so maybe the title of the album isn't really correct anyway this is a pretty uh, it's only two minutes long this work and it was written in a single night Um, Addis once uh, described himself as a Baroque composer living in the 21st century interesting so I guess this fits the program I wish there were more of those kind of composers really Uh, the inspiration for this work is rather funny Addis's cellist friend, Zoya Martlu, had told him she couldn't spend the evening with him as planned because she had to practice. So off she went to practice, <laughs> and Addis uh, wrote this piece while she was practicing. <laughs> and um, That's all those he, dripping
0: uh, notes in there. That's where they come
1: from. Well, yeah. He, um, yeah the, the scales are her practicing. You hear actual scale uh-huh. notes. It's a series of chords representing his reproving voice failing to stop the chalice from playing her scales um the the dispute is finally resolved in the form of a pizzicato c major cadence he wrote this score in a night and sent it to her via fax the same night that she was practicing and it must have had been quite a surprise for her it's kind of uh, it sounds like a very british thing to do really Okay, I found the chords in this. He claims that he's like a Baroque composer living in the twenty first century. The chords in fact are almost Bachian, but his his I I guess that's him because it does sound sort of Baroque. Um and we hear the slow upward practice scales, they're harmonized later. It's a cute work. It's not a master work. I mean Addis has written masterworks, he's a pretty great composer. Uh the lower register and chords sound pretty angry. And the double stop scale starts sounding rather sad and apologetic towards the end, so I guess he, uh, I guess he gets his way. I think of, um, yeah, in the end, I guess the artist always kind of, in his art, you know, kind of uh, fixes what's not working out in real life. Anyway, this whole album was pretty fantastic. If you like the cello, it's really a must hear. And then even if you're not a big fan of uh, British music, I happen to like it. I think you still need to hear this. I thought this is a fantastic recording. It's probably the, my favorite one of the three that I've uh, talked about today.
0: Yeah, for me, uh cello is my favorite string instrument, and I really like uh, Isserlis. Uh, is one of my favorite. Lynn Harrell, Isserlis, mm. a few other uh, cellists who I really like. Um... However, this recording, I I didn't really care for the Britain pieces. Oh, really? Um, Yeah, Mm. uh, just because... Well, they
1: were heavy, yeah.
0: Well, the thing I like about Isserlis is his tone. I mean, that's what I like about cello. That's why it's my favorite instrument, because it's sort of in that range of the human voice. It doesn't... uh, Well, to use... I don't know, what do the the Brits say? Get on my tits, or something like that. Uh, (laughs) It doesn't... You know, like, violin can... I like violin, but sometimes it just, uh, you know, it irritates me. It it's makes high up the, there.
1: Yeah. The throatiness I'm, of the cello is really appealing, I have to say. But,
0: uh, you know, I have a lot of, I have some other recordings, uh, you know, more romantic works and things. Mm-hmm. And so I'm always yearning for that uh, vocal quality. Uh, and the Briton piece just, uh, although it was interesting, it didn't give me uh, what I really want to hear uh, from Isserlis, what I think he does best uh, which really make the instruments sing uh, mm. there so uh, for me my f- I, my favorite piece on here was the Merrick um, because, yeah uh, then, I, liked
1: it too. I liked it too but I liked the Britain as well I thought it was really yeah. powerful but you know, well, nevertheless
0: it I was can't... interesting and I tried to follow it along and understand what was going on and I also appreciated you know the uh, exposition of the melodies afterwards to show what the things yeah. were built on. Yeah. It was all a yeah. good program and like that. But what I like about the cello, I didn't really get until I got to the American. And then I was really satisfied because I thought is, was is- really dug in, uh, to those pieces. And I got that, you know, huge fat tone and, uh, all the things he can do with, um, you know, emotional investment. I really think he's a, a player that really gives his heart to, uh, something that has like this real sort of um, expressive uh, expansiveness to it. And I thought the the Merrick had that uh, in it, whereas the, yeah, you know, the. <laughs> yeah, it's a really enjoyable
1: piece, the Merrick. Yeah. I liked it a lot too.
0: The Britain was an interesting concept, but I I just didn't feel like it, it had enough places for Isserlis to open up with his expressive capabilities. Uh, so I liked that. Uh, I didn't really think much of the artist at the end. I was kind of like, <laughs> well,
1: not, now that I've given the story about it, it's yeah, really just it's, a, it's a situational story. sort of piece. Yeah, I like, I like the
0: story. <laughs> um, and
1: uh, it's a, it's a throwaway piece basically, but it's fine. Kind of, you know, I like
0: the gardener and mm-hmm. uh, um, the uh, the Waltons too. I, I just didn't. Uh, Britain's didn't do much for me but I always like to hear Isserlis his, you know his just tone is just gorgeous yeah uh,
1: really he's really and, uh, yeah, majestic so me, really yeah for
0: me the the Merrick was uh, was funny even though I mean it's a lot of these dance like movements that it gets a little repetitive but I don't mind because it's it's Stephen it's Isserlis playing yeah. Cholo gotcha. and it's really appealing yeah so yeah. Uh, anything anything that he plays uh, is just gorgeous in uh, tone so I can only imagine what it must be like to hear it uh you know, just right in front of you.
1: Uh, yeah, I've never be heard be him great. play yeah. live. It's it's a real shame. Great. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. One day. <laughs>
0: yeah, someday
1: maybe. I, I remember I first came across him actually when I was here in Japan. He was on uh, NHK, playing uh, John Taverner's "The Protecting Veil," which was a new work at the time. It was in the 1990s, and it was on TV. And I was just immediately captivated. He was younger. He's a lot younger right. then and I was immediately captivated by his playing and just followed like him ever since cuz I like the piece as well too, mm. you know.
0: Yeah, he's got he's got everything in a you know in addition to the tone, he's got that expressiveness and he's also got a mm. bit of aggression in his playing that he can call out uh, tenderness to. Uh, it's all there. So yeah, I mean he's one yeah. He's one of the no, top, He's one of top, the best yes, living
1: yeah, yeah, cellists right. absolutely so, I would yeah. say.
0: Yeah, so interesting recording. Uh, unfortunately you're going to have to buy it if you want to hear it. You Hyperion
1: yeah. so uh, yeah.
0: if you're a cellist or you really like um, cello works, it's probably worth adding this to your collection on the Hyperion we'd gladly,
1: label. We'd glad, gladly invite you over to hear it at our places, but I don't think you can get into Japan at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome the to the Mountain
0: Lair next week for the Christmas yeah. episode. We'll throw this on the Luxman and Dolly. I know it's going to sound good on the Dolly oh, yeah. Helicons, uh, So,
1: What, this particular album? We're going to
0: play Oh with yeah, okay, cello okay. on those Dolly Helicons. Uh,
1: yeah. oh, so I have to bring this over, I guess. It's so I It's the, so... Well, yeah.
0: I You've already shared
1: it with me, so we
0: can yeah. do oh, that's that. That's right. But uh, it sounds really warm. I have to keep the uh, Christmas tree away so it doesn't catch on fire. Oh, yeah. And,
1: uh,
0: yeah. It's going to be fun. I'm really looking forward to next week.
1: So. Oh, it's going to be good. Yeah, we have to get through a week of work first. Though. Yeah. <clears throat> anyway,
0: before we get to Christmas, uh, this week, well, last week we had uh, an uh, organic high.
1: Uh, organic, all, organic high things. I'm still That's high right. from last That's week's high that was really good it was um, good anyway yeah.
0: looking at my list there's still so many things I'm never going to get to everything uh, I'm in the same situation I want to but uh,
1: the other bulging uh,
0: like your Christmas stocking bulging with mm. uh, stuff. What, things what, what's
1: the French phrase that embarrass de riche like a, you know an embarrassment of riches, you have too yes. much good stuff, you know. Too much, too many piano, yeah, uh, yeah.
0: Uh, works, and so I thought I'll have to break some of these out. Uh, most of these have come out uh, since summertime, and uh, well, there's a good variety and I think uh, really interesting things. So what I put up first here, and this is sort of a bridge from the classical world into jazz uh, so I don't know with our listeners you know we don't know about uh, what you like out there maybe we have some hardcore classical uh, fans or some yeah, jazz yeah fans. listeners we
1: don't know anything about you write to us, yeah. <laughs> you know, tell, us we, tell us let um, us know what you want to hear anyway um,
0: the reason I picked this because uh, sometimes this kind of bridge can go terribly wrong can be a bridge to nowhere and uh, push you into the precipice of uh, when you try to uh you know do something like this recording does. but i uh you know this is like 20 years ago i was uh, I had a coworker who was a a really hardcore classical fan and he told me i don't like jazz cuz it's sloppy and oh man <laughs> yeah i
1: you have to that, tell me who this was after the podcast yeah. it's like <laughs> I don't um, know. anyway so i thought you know that's um I, I can't
0: let that sit. So I I had a Hmm. CD at the time. It was the Manhattan Jazz uh,
1: Quintet. uh, That actually, that comment says a lot more about him than it says about jazz. I can tell you that. Anyway,
0: I think it was Manhattan Jazz Quintet, uh, which is like Lou Soloff and all these monster players in New York. And they had done a a disc at that time called the Air on the G-String. And it was the jazz versions of all these... uh, you know, classical pieces. So I said, here, listen to this. And uh, that one recording really changed his opinion. He said, that was great. Do you have anything else I can listen to? And so that sort of opened up uh, his mind to listening to jazz music. And um, I had the uh, fortune to uh, learn a bit from a fabulous trumpet player uh, named Howie Shear. And uh, he did... Uh, dissertation really on uh, how you know you can analyze jazz music basically, you know, the same way you can look at a, a piece by Bach and uh, see you know what the you know what the chords are, uh, how the structure relates uh, harmonically, just like uh, any piece of classical music. So there's a lot of you know things in jazz that in you know, classical listeners musicians should appreciate too uh and sometimes we get musicians who you know cross over and bring some classical into jazz or you know jazz into classical music a, f- a couple of weeks ago we were listening to um uh, the uh polish violinist who uh is sort of inspiring uh, classical musicians to imp- to improvise uh and you know take those liberties as i think you know Probably in earlier areas, there was a, a lot more improvisation in classical music. Uh, you know, we know that Bach was an improviser, too. Uh, anyway, speaking of Bach, uh, that's
1: where Yeah, the I, first, it all really changed after Beethoven. He was the one who kind of said, you know, okay, you got to do what I say. <laughs> you know? Yeah, my way. Yeah. Um, so there wasn't any inter- in improvisation after that. Anyway, he didn't once, write out his cadenzas.
0: Yeah, once in a while, we get uh, sort of these interesting sort of uh, bridges. And I think this is one that's uh, kind of successful. It's a Spanish pianist who I didn't know before, but I guess he's a a well-known pianist in Europe and also a producer, uh, Moise P. Sanchez. And Hmm. uh, he's got this uh, recording uh, called Bach Reinventions. uh, Yeah. And it's on the March of Evil label. And probably... (laughs) The March of Evil (laughs) March Vivo, uh, Vivo, okay. Vivo, yeah. Which a label I don't know. Uh, okay, but uh, probably all pianists know these works and
1: uh, yeah, other classical do. people. Are, <laughs> I,
0: I, from what I know, the, he, they were written for one of his sons, and then by extension, uh, you know, as a sort of study for musicians and pianists to teach counterpoint and composition. Uh, and so there's 15 inventions uh, that sort of show how to have two lines of music uh, working together and where they should go in terms of composition.
1: In counterpoint. Anyway. In counterpoint, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. You
0: have multiple lines or two lines of music uh, working together. Uh, so Sanchez has uh, seen these as uh, works to inspire uh, further development uh, hmm. in terms of improvisation and uh, extension of ideas. And uh, so that's what he's done with these and taken them into the uh, jazz world. And so he's here uh, on piano and also making the arrangements of these. And we've, he's got some interesting uh, compadres here. He's got <laughs> uh, Pablo Caminero on double bass. That's Pablo one, And then we've got what to me is a suspicious name, sorry, uh, <laughs> but Pablo Jones. Actually, they're both... Pa- yeah, those names don't go together really well, do they? I don't know. They're both Pablo M. So uh, Pablo M. Caminero and Pablo M. Jones, uh, hmm. who's on uh, percussion, drums, uh, uh, the interesting uh, sort of uh, tab instrument, Mbira, and other effects Yeah,
1: I was wondering what that was Like a thumb
0: piano yeah, I heard but l- in there look it yeah. up They get really big You know, like desktop yeah. size With a huge box That sounds much bigger than it is yeah. And uh, it sounds huge on, on this album And uh, so he's going to go through These inventions uh, And, uh, you know, see what he can uh, do uh, In terms of improvisation And it's pretty interesting So oh, I thought so too, yeah Yeah So he starts out Uh, we go right through the list 1 to 15. Uh, There's a lot of them, so I won't uh, stay too long on them. But anyway, the first one starts out with imbira, uh, and then piano too. Uh, It's a very straightforward playing of this, if you know it. Um, And then over sort of like uh, the bass joins in, a sort of quarter note and half note uh, bass line uh, that fills in there. Uh, And then the piano and bass also exchange the melody. So the counterpoint is often given to the bass throughout all of these uh, pieces. Uh, this one, as it said, uh, Jones uh, has imbued and effects. I'm not quite sure what he's doing for all the effects. There's some washy synth sounds on here in some places. Mm. So this one gets a little bit dreamy with kind of echoey, washy effects and some uh a little bit of piano improvisation too. Uh, yeah, but when the, he's
1: playing the theme on the piano too, he's using the pedal here. Yeah. These days it's kind of um, been decided that we're going to go back to the uh, sort of um, you know period practice and they, they, they kind of keep the notes as short as possible so they won't use the piano when right. they play Bach. He'll do he'll do that sometimes, but then sometimes he'll yeah. take a more romantic approach. So there's a lot of variety on this yeah, album. Yeah, he mixes it up quite a bit. Some of them are played very straight, Uh, Some of them are played actually with
0: very little improvisation at all. Uh, Just Mm. maybe sort of with a little uh, sort of uh, different bent in uh, target. And then some of them are really expanded on. Uh, So number two, uh, number one is C major. Number two is C minor. Uh, This one starts with a straight piano beginning. um, And then the bass comes in with a counterpoint line. Uh, And there's a, I should add that these aren't, he doesn't, uh, move these into sort of a swing beat. Most of them are mm. played with a straight beat. Uh, mm. or actually, almost all of them. And so this, there's a straight drum beat added on this one, too. Uh, and then next, there's a big modern sort
1: of court interlude. So number two is where he really starts to take <laughs> off with these. Um, there's a lot of contrast because he plays it in the notey style that you're familiar with at Bach at the beginning and then it just suddenly changes. It really
0: launches into this modern jazz, huge, you know, uh, spaced out chords. Then it settles down a bit. Sanchez launches into a really modern solo. He weaves in and out of the harmony so he's going outside of the chords uh, and the beat is really funky and subdivided. And then suddenly he jumps back to the beginning uh, invention melody uh, and then back to the modern harmony to the end. So it's a really nice creative sandwich. You get a preview of things to come uh, on this one. Um, invention 3 is uh, D major. This one starts with some kind of drum brush scratching and a really low bass drum beat uh, uh, before the piano comes in. The piano, uh, when it comes in, is joined by a bowed bass on a counterline uh, for the kind of invention exposition, which is nice, uh, another new thing. And we get in this third one, uh, Camonero gets an interlude for a bowing solo. And then he works the upper register, which he kind of gets a really nice glow in his sound. Um, and then Sanchez brings it back. And here he's really chiming out the notes of the melody. And then, uh, He gets a kind of cute music box high register ending uh, while the bass gets some bowed overtones. So uh, he really takes this one uh, out of its element and uh, explores the possibilities. Uh, Four is uh, D minor. You can see the pattern here. You're going major to minor uh, through the keys. This one starts with a blast, and then it lightens up as it moves swiftly through the melody. There's nice bass lines underneath here. It morphs into something modern and takes a slow, funky beat in bass line as it goes. Uh, And then it also gets a modal character uh, when he decides to go off and explore uh, the harmonies. Uh, And Sanchez explores the harmonies really well in his uh, solo runs. Uh, He builds it up with some heavy chords, and then he's back to the invention melody. And then it ends with some interesting combinations of chords. Uh, So he's sort of dissecting these and uh, stitching together uh, what he feels is the more interesting sections and ideas as he goes through. Uh, number five, uh, track five is uh, E flat major, invention number five. Uh, he starts with a descending bluesy motif into this one. So this one gets an intro. Uh, then the melody is played by the piano, uh, counter lines in the bass. He takes more liberties here as it repeats and adds some improvisations. And he arrives at this kind of bluesy, funky groove on this one. Uh, his solo. <laughs> who who is knew you
1: could pull all of that uh, yeah. box lines, you know? Boy. His
0: solo is rhythmic and bluesy, and he builds it with some dissonant intervals and then these huge repeating chords at the end of the tune. So somehow he finds blues in E-flat <laughs> e major Bach, which is pretty cool. Uh, then... Uh, Number 6, Invention 6 in E major. Uh, This starts with an interval sequence, opening with piano and bass. There's some percussion effects for atmosphere, and this one sticks mostly to the original melody. It's got a sparser arrangement here, and Sanchez just alters the harmony with new ideas in spots, but this one's pretty much straight uh, forward uh, with the regular Invention. Uh, Then Invention 7, E minor. It's a nice bass and drum counterline to the piano in this one. It's got a lot of things going on, but it ends in just over a minute, and there's no solos. So sort of straightforward uh, here, cut short. Invention 8 is F major. This one gets a lush ballad intro. So here's where he draws out the Hmm. legato uh, in contrast to, you know, uh, he's he's using the pedal and things here. Uh, And then the invention gets placed into that, sort of atmosphere he starts with the intro. Uh, It sounds at home, but there's a lot of movement. Sanchez keeps it, legato, and then Caminero has some smooth counter bass lines and a real yearning melodic bass solo here that reaches up in the upper register. This was pretty cool. Uh, It comes to a pause after the bass solo, and then Sanchez returns to the legato interpretation of the Invention, building it into a pretty improvisation through the high keys on the piano. Uh, come in there or add some high tones and descending interval sequences to a pretty finish. Uh, I really like this one a lot. Uh, 9, Invention 9 and in F minor. Uh, this one copies in the same style as 7, with bass and drums working against the piano as the counterpoint. Uh, this time they get a kind of hypnotic groove going at the end of the intervention and really heavy drums and then some electronic effects and synth kind of vocal sounds, uh, you know, those oohs and ahs of the keyboard here. And then it ends with kind of like, I'm not sure what he's using here, but it's almost like a xylophone or high percussion sort of mallet uh, type of thing uh, here. It's a little bit different. Uh, Invention 10 g major uh this one is played on imbira and bass uh no Hmm. piano here and uh but they they must have like the microphone almost inside the the box for it so if you feel like your head is in the imbira box and uh it's very Mm. echoey and swoony uh so uh
1: different kind of this, effect totally this is number 10 right yeah number 10 i uh, this sounded a bit like a caribbean steel drum that's to what me. I, that's I was thinking wondering. uh yeah, yeah. trinidadian steel not, huh? drums
0: no it's not it's the imbira um and i actually looked okay. it up because i only knew the small versions of it but there's some recordings you can see on youtube a full size one and it's amazing the sort of low bass tones that can be drawn yeah, it's out it's kind of, of that. had that yeah. kind of like yeah, tunes huge. kind of sound that the steel drum yeah, has the low tones get this huge steel drum kind of effect uh so yeah the timbre is really interesting uh 11 is g minor uh invention 11. it starts off uh, like nine and seven but sanchez takes some more liberties here Uh, After a pause after the main melody he gets a riff going then he uses the harmonic progression to launch into a a piano exploration and he goes on his own in some interesting directions Then he sets the ending down kind of softly. Uh, 12 is in A major. This one starts with a bowed bass solo intro which is nice after kind of following the same pattern Uh, and he gets some interesting pitch slides (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that you yeah. weren't expecting Bach. He, 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 he also
1: got kind of an unusual sad sort of sound too, yeah. which I don't really associate with Bach. So it's yeah. kind of interesting to hear with the in the context.
0: Uh Sanchez and Jones uh join in with the melody and the, and compared to the bass, then they play the melody really daintily here. It's sort of just uh uh danced out here. K- Ken works a counterline between the piano phrases and uh Sanchez gets creative with some just, chimey chords uh, at the end. Invention 13 is A minor. It's not too fast on this one. Some of the previous ones are really, you know, they just launching out of the gate with uh, speed on them. Uh, This one's played uh, very straight at the start. Uh, Jones just adds some light clicks for rhythm here. Uh, It pauses on an unresolved chord and then Jones builds up a unique beat with a soft hits over kind of a bigger bass drum. Uh, and then Sanchez and Caminero come back in with a real jazzy and bluesy new idea uh, that it sort of ends just as it was picking up steam. I wanted to see where they would go with this. This is one of the m- more jazzy interpretations, uh, but it doesn't last long. Uh, then we've got uh, Invention 14 in B-flat major. This is slow and legato over a soft rock beat. Uh, Sanchez sticks close to the original melody, but Caminero has a bass solo where he finds some really cool bluesy ideas uh, mm-hmm. to fit over the harmonies. Though so, I mean, the harmonies are straight on, but he somehow mines the blues out of this, and it ends up really sounding like a cool pop song. Uh, so you, you can really see in this tune how you know Bach's codification of the harmonic ideas is just carries into the modern era right through pop and jazz music.
1: Yeah. When I hear, when I hear like, especially like the bass player, when, when they can pull these sort of ideas out of the, out of this music that I kind of think of in a certain way, it makes me feel like anything is possible. Yeah. yeah. So there's something really liberating about hearing this, uh, this uh, album. Just, I I generally like Bach in a jazz um, idiom anyway. So, but this was really kind of, it really went off a little bit too. All those two, five ones. I mean, they just go through there.
0: Uh, And then, The final invention, 15, is B minor. Uh, This one has some syncopated space chord intro before the melody. Caminero is synced with Sanchez's left hand on this one. In most of the tracks, the bass is sort of not working with the piano. The bass is often the counterpoint to the piano, and whereas Sanchez will be using the left hand for harmony. Uh, Mm -hmm. But here, the bass and the left hand are locked in which you'll notice uh, as a difference. Um, they return to the intro chord idea, and they use it to launch into a really interesting uh, rhythm section kind of uh, idea for Sanchez to solo on. And then the album ends going back to Invention One in C major, uh, but they do something different. It has really <laughs> sparse, <sure> <laughs> yeah, sparse notes and chording uh, intro with some very dreamy effects. Sanchez. Interest- said... I said new agey,
1: new age. It's a bit new agey, yeah. Um,
0: <laughs> I don't Sancho think it's necessarily a
1: bad thing, though. No. People, new yeah, age gets like as, as long as it's only one gets, track.
0: Uh, he stops and starts the it's got its the, place, new the age, the motion music, with pauses that give sort of melody fragments and new ideas, but it doesn't uh get momentum. And the final section gets some weighty low piano chords. Sanchez tinkles out some high note improvisations to finish it. It's a very atmospheric take. Um, but all in all, it's an interesting project, and he finds inspiration in these Bach works. There's a lot of variety. He has great technique, um, and uh, you know he knows his Bach well. He knows how these are supposed to work with the counterpoints. Uh, he has some really cool jazz ideas uh, exploring harmonies. Um, I think it's worth a listen, and it's a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, it's more than worth a listen. I think it's worth uh, kind of having. Maybe I don't know yeah. that I'll pick this yeah. one up, but I did. I did enjoy it a lot. It's it's very inventive with the mm. inventions. It's yeah. it's uh, just just the ideas that they pulled out of this and were able to develop. Uh, from the material were just always surprising for me. Like I I said, it kind of set my brain free in a way to Mm. hear this. I think uh, if the classical, I hope classical listeners uh, listen to the jazz section of this podcast because they really should be, they really should hear this album. I think it was, I thought it was really, oh, to coin it a new term, inventive. I
0: think, yeah, I think Bach would be pleased with this, uh, you know. uh, It reminds me of that story where um, Stravinsky was in New York and, uh, you know, he, he went into, I don't know what club it was at the time, but, uh, Charlie Parker was playing no. and, uh, Charlie Parker was a big fan of Stravinsky's music. Right. And, uh, he saw, uh, supposedly saw Stravinsky walk in and, uh, in the middle of whatever tune he was playing, he just fit in a quote from the Rite of Spring. And, uh, Stravinsky <laughs> was so like, excited that he stood up and like knocked the table over and spilled his whiskey or something and so it was sort of like two geniuses from different idioms who you know yeah. were appreciating each other and uh there's no reason why that can't happen at any time and i think Sanchez does a you know he does something like that here uh and uh yeah it's good fun for uh classical and jazz fans alike uh, so check it out and i i want to check out some of you know his other things cuz he's a new pianist for me Uh, Yeah. So,
1: yeah, I thought this was really interesting. So, yeah, yeah, I might have to check some of that out too.
0: Yeah. All right. Uh, on to a completely different type of pianist, uh, very original and another. I actually really like all of these, uh, recordings this week. Uh, and this is, uh, Anthony Wansey, uh, on the Cellar Live label with, uh, album called Lorraine's Lullaby. And, uh, so we've got Wansey on piano, uh, Dimitri Kolsnik on bass, uh, for most of the album. On two tracks, another bassist, Brandy Disterheft, uh, tracks eight and ten. Uh, on drum, Chris Beck, uh, trumpet, Antoine Dry, uh, there's only two tracks, eight and nine, sax, uh, tenor sax, that is, Zet Harris, and, uh, one track, we've got vocals, uh, Milton Suggs. And this album is produced by Jeremy Pelt, the great uh, jazz trumpet player. And uh, how it progresses is that uh, it starts out with actually a solo piano, and then it gets uh, just a bass. Track two is uh, duo. Then we get jazz trio for a while. We add the horns in, and finally we end with vocals. So it's sort of a nice sort of layering approach going through it. And uh, the material is covering a nice mixture too. We've got a few standards, not de- necessarily done in the standard way. Uh, mm. Of course, we've got some Wanzi originals, but also Koznick contributes a few tunes. He's an excellent writer uh, as well. So let's go through what we've got here. Uh, we start with uh, Sweet Lorraine. He uh, may uh, associate this tune with uh, Bud Powell, uh, did amazing things with it. Uh, it's a uh, kind of standard tune by Cliff Burwell and Mitchell Parrish. Uh, this is just solo piano. Uh, once he gets to the melody after a brief intro, he plays rubato, adding nice runs and chord movement between the phrases. Uh, he breaks into a swing for a bit, which he'll do again. But then he pulls it back out of the tempo uh, to work on these more rubato ideas uh, that he has going. Uh, And he also adds some bluesy phrases in his improvisations. Uh, When he comes back to the rubato, he's able to add uh, some of these big chord clusters, which when he's in the swing, he's doing this kind of almost stride-like thing. Uh, But I think he wants to do more color painting here uh, because that's the kind of player that he is. Uh, he works up to a nicely embellished ending. Uh, his hands are sort of chasing each other up on a run uh, where they're almost catching up with each other, and he sets the ending down gently. So we get got a solo track uh, intro. Yeah. Number two is uh, an original by the bassist, Dmitry Kolsnik. It's called Giving Rise to Doubt. This is a really pretty rubato piano intro. Kolsnik joins in with a pulsing bass line the melody is very pretty Kolsnik's a really nice composer on the two tunes he contributes on this album it's a kind of melancholy really rich chords Uh, and Kolsnik gets a solo for himself uh, starting things out he's got a very fat tone uh, nice bass sound Wanzi's solo lines uh, roll on sometimes it seems as if they would stop like it's as if his fingers are under weighted tension. Hmm. This is the feel I get for his piano style. Um, He has this relaxed approach that even when he's playing fast lines, uh, as he does on the pretty phrases at the end of this tune here, it's as if there's this tension holding him back. It's almost like this... um, I don't know how to describe it. It's as if he has like rubber bands pulling back on his fingers, yeah. so it, it gets this really lovely hesitation in the way that he plays. So there's always sort of like a I feel like there's a a rhythmic cocking almost like like, slight, the, like
1: the notes are slightly late. You're saying no, like it's not kinda, even that. It's just,
0: yeah. it's it's like they're weighted with the tension of a hammer pulled back on a revolver or something, oh. and. And it just gives a kind of spring, but never sort of a a rushing feeling, even when he's playing fast. To me, it feels like he's being effortless doing it and he could be playing. It's like, I'm playing this, but I could do even less. And I think that's sort of the appeal to his style, I feel. You know, in in a sort of, you know, there's so many great pianists out there, but I felt like his rhythmic approach is kind of unique uh, throughout all of these things
1: yeah he seems the thing i got from this he seems to like th- there's a lot of intellect in his playing yes he he seems to know all of the uh the styles of jazz piano through the uh through the years and he manages to get a bunch of them into every track it's it's yeah. really amazing you know he'll just yeah. kind of go from one style to the next uh this particular track is kind of i i said it proceeds almost like a classical work because it just feels like it, it has a shape, it has like an architecture to it, you know, that was yeah. uh, that was sort of pre-thought out, yeah. you know, so, you know, it was kind of... Uh, yeah. It's a nice composition, you know, I'm surprised.
0: Yeah. Uh, uh, Kolsnik here is a, is a good composer. Um, yeah, so this is um, a very attractive uh, original work here. Uh, and then we'll go back to another standard for track three, the Richard Rodgers, uh, I didn't know what time it was, but it, you've never heard it like this before uh, because it starts out with a really funky piano introduction and it doesn't swing. It gets a pulsing R&B beat uh, right from the bass and drum uh, working together. And it's got a like a rim shot in the beat. So just, <laughs> doom, doom, chan, doom. you get those like, whoa. I think that's a play. I think he's playing on time. You know, I didn't know what time it was because the time in this moves around a lot. Um, hmm. They And what's cool is in the middle of the melody, in the head, and then in the solos, they also turn back into swing for just a few bars. Yeah, and and then it comes out of that. Um, so uh, they do that, and then after they do that, they also will return to the funky riff that's established in the beginning. Uh, and so they do that after the melody. They hit that riff. Koznick gets a bass solo first. Uh, again, nice melodic bass playing. Uh, also with a good funkiness to it uh the riff and melody return again and then they launch it into a fast gospel-y beat so (laughs) now it it was funky before but now it's like frantic you know and hallelujah uh wanzi solos over that beck really lays it down heavy on the drums on this one uh and it's interesting, in the recording, the drums are panned hard right, and it's almost as if the drummer's beating in the head uh, here. It's <laughs> kind of cool, but it is really heavy. Uh, and Wansey works up a revival frenzy of rhythmic chords, bluesy lines. They bring it back down t- to the slow, funky intro to end it. And yeah, so you may not know what time signature or rhythm it's going on, but it's good fun uh, here. Uh, track four... Um, Another Colesnick original, another really pretty attractive tune called Little Mouse. I guess it's better than a big mouse. I don't know. Uh, no. It's a pretty piano I don't even, intro. Have you ever seen a big mouse? I don't know. Um, yeah, it's a big four mouse. I don't know. No, I did see a, a large, almost cat sized rat in the Sanjo arcade <laughs> when I was cycling oh, home from a, a night of
1: drinking years ago. Oh, but
0: boy. I think those a lot days of that are changed behind.
1: Recently, me. yeah. Um, they may be behind Kyoto, too. We'll have to see. It could be.
0: Uh, Anyway, this one uh, gets a piano intro for more than a minute, uh, which is not the only one we'll hear on this album. Uh, Wonsi likes to work things, uh, work into things, I should say. Uh, And after you think it's going to be this big, lush thing, it turns out to not be an, uh, it's not a ballad after all, Um, but Hmm. it's a medium swing. Uh, Beck adds some nice, tight brushwork on the snare here. Wonsi gets a swinging solo and he punctuates it with these left-hand chords that push his lines along. Uh, Koznick also has a solo. It's short, but it's really meaty, uh, you know, like it's got some, you know, good chops on it, I should say, and it has a good bounce to it. Uh, and then uh, Wanzi comes back and he trades fours, gives Beck some uh, time to beat the uh, skins a bit before they hit the final melody. Eh nice composition. I really like Kolsnick as a composer here. Uh, I want to check out some of his own uh, stuff. Hmm. Uh, Track 5, Blues for Hiroshi. And I guess Hiroshi is a a club owner in Tokyo who Hmm. has often had uh, Wansi play series of uh, um, performances uh, over the years, and so he wrote this for him. Um, This one is... uh, uh, interesting tune. Uh the left hand piano introduces a bass line. Uh it's got an unexpected uh chord in there, uh that starts the intro. And then uh it goes into this section that's a real even beat uh place and and Beck gets some real intense cymbal thrashing uh mm-hmm. in that
1: part. But he, when- he he's a pretty um present Oh, yeah. Drummer, you Yeah, know? <laughs> You're always really aware of him, you mm. know. But uh,
0: the main tune is actually in swing. It swings. And so after they go out of this sort of uh, even beat, intense interlude section, it goes into the swinging. Uh, but uh, they get back to that injection of the even beat pattern now and then. Uh, in the melody and the solos, uh, just for fun, you know. So it's sort of it's one of these tunes where the rhythm changes up now and then, and then you get that you know even beat change and thrashing. Uh, Wanzi and Koznick get solos, and then Wanzi trades with Beck again before a repeat of the melody. It's a fun original tune. I imagine Hiroshi was happy uh, with a cool <laughs> tune written for him. Um, this would be I'd a good be one happy live. with any tune written for me, really. Yeah, this would be a good one <laughs> to hear live in your own club. Yeah. Uh, Track six, a standard, more Richard Rodgers here. It's from the film State Fair. A really usually uh, lovely kind of ballad tune, uh, one of the great spring tunes. Uh, It might as well be spring. But here, uh, they're going to do it a little bit differently. Uh, There's a lush piano intro uh, into the melody. Uh, Wanzi makes some interesting reharmonizations. Uh, Beck plays lightly, and then... As he's building up the drum, you realize that it gets a, a bossa type beat. So they're not swinging this; uh, it's straight beat. Uh, it's I, I say bossa-like because it doesn't get the kind of uh, accented places that bossa usually gets, but it's even beat uh, in in nature. Koznick has another rhythmic solo here. Uh, Wanzi goes from uh, lush to more intense chiming phrases and it's a nice fresh reimagining of this standard. They're not just playing down, you know, this tune that we often hear, Jazz musicians and play. Um, no, this gets a, a kind of at least harmon- or a rhythmically reinvention uh, in an almost bossa type thing, but it's not really like that. Uh, so I like this one a lot. Uh, <clears throat> now we're gonna shift gears a bit uh seven uh blacker black's revenge a wans the original uh the remaining tunes are all his original ones this one starts with intense piano chords yeah Uh, it certainly does yeah just hammering out and these really fast angular um uh you can call it melody it's not very melodic but it's the this uh kind of uh, post pop kind of style tune. Uh it's got lots of breaks and changes. Uh, you, get, you you don't want to be in the band and doze off when you play this tune because uh, there's a lot going on. Uh listen to Koznick's bass playing here. He he's got to yeah. really keep changing things up between uh doing these uh, stopping rhythms and
1: fast lines uh and I I wrote that his bass pattern is is a quasi <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yeah. like solo. So yeah, he's kind of almost like soloing. He's doing so much that yeah, he's 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 really
0: exposed here. Once he gets through all the obstacles, this is basically an obstacle course of a head yeah. of a tune because there's so much going on. It's really fun and cool. Uh, when it gets going, it gets into a real driving beat because the tempo's fast. And Wanzi's intense here. He's cranked up uh, in comparison to the previous tracks. Um, and so his is very... Uh, inspired here. After they repeat the melody again, then uh, they hammer on the repeated chord for a while. Uh, so Beck thrashes out a little bit, but then he doesn't get too much space so, Oh, and they get to the end uh, there. So very cool original tune. Uh, uh, it's difficult enough just to play what wrote on this one. So um, you yeah, don't want to doze off on that. Uh, eight, another Wonsie original, Avos Blues, B-L-O-O-Z-E. It's kind of like blues and booze
1: together I like that word (laughs) I do like it yeah Yeah. I like it myself
0: Uh, here we get the switch out uh, for a different bass player uh, Brandy Disterheft and uh, the horns come in on this tune and it's kind of an upbeat swinging tune Uh, Zet Harris on tenor sax solos first and then uh, Antoine Dry on trumpet and then finally onesie uh, on piano Uh, it's a nice change to have the horns in here uh, and kind of a uh, feel-good tune Number nine, another Wansey original, Do You Remember Me? Dramatic piano intro here, pretty runs, and lots of chord movement. The intro here, like the other ones, lasts more than in a minute, so (laughs) he's not in any hurry to uh, get in, but that's nice. He uh, gets some nice ideas in. After a pause, the bass and drums are in, and this one gets off to a chugging swing. Uh, The horn lines snake over the chords with spots for... Horn solo phrases, and then the horns trade off solo lines, kind of conversing with each other. Wanzi gets a solo next, and the horns come in to back him, and uh, the snaking lines continue as he works up to more and more intense lines to the end. So I like this sort of idea rather than just having, you know, uh, melody, solo, 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 and then repeat the melody. There's a constant interplay in this tune. Uh, keeping the horns working and listening to each other, and then they build off uh, the uh, piano solo too. Uh, so, uh, yeah, a little different approach to uh, getting the players uh, working in with their solos. And then we get the last tune, uh, the vocal. Uh, another one's the original, Melancholy Mind, uh, piano and a harmon-muted trumpet on the intro to this, are joined by the bass and drums. And this gets kind of a light bossa nova type groove to it. Uh, you wouldn't think it's bossa nova, but if you listen to it, you'll hear that it's even beat, it's not swingy. And here we've got Milton Suggs on the vocal. The melody that Wansey's written here is kind of a dreamy type of melody. And Suggs floats it nicely over the interesting harmonies. There's a lot of uh, interesting sort of uh, tensions and close tones and movements in the harmonies, and the melody works uh, nice uh, placed on that. He works up the intensity to a nice climax, uh, but then he brings it down and he stays on. The horns come in after the, uh, the main melody's over, and he stays on with backing lines with the horns at that point, Wansey brings in his solo and Suggs keeps singing over that uh, with, uh, you know, phrases with the melody uh, right to the end. Uh, the sol- So the piano and the vocals just keep on going and it sort of fades, fades out as it gets to the end. So it's kind of a nice, kind of dreamy, soulful close to an album that has a lot of variety to it already. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and so I like Wansey's approach. He's got a, a very... Um, unique sort of way that uh, he plays piano. Uh, he's not a show-off. Uh, even when he plays fast, it's with a lot of restraint, but he sort of minds the uh, uh, kind of harmonic richness in his playing. His left hand is always doing interesting things too, very interesting rhythms. Uh, the program material here is nice. We've got standards, but done in an interesting way. Wanzi's original tunes are cool. Koznick's compositions are really pretty. And then the way the album is built, it's building layers with the instruments
1: uh, as we go through to the end. They're a really good album. Um, yeah. I said busy, complicated, intellectual... Yet appealing, I don't know how yeah. you how that happens. Um, the effect is dizzying, but not off-putting. Mm. Uh, it's hard to put a finger on the essence of the ideas as they keep being pulled away from you before you can really kind of get to uh, to know them. Uh, so this this pianist uh, Wolsey is he's a monster. He's yeah. uh, he's he's got a lot of like knowledge and great technique. And he won my respect. I don't think this is really a pianist you love as much as you respect, but nevertheless, it's uh it's a, it's an appealing record. Um, and uh, but it, I don't know that I shouldn't say it'll take work. It doesn't. You know they they give you the ideas, but it's it's hard to really get a grasp on what's happening. Maybe that's a good thing too. I don't know. Yeah. You know, I, like I think I
0: though. I listened to this like four times this week, wow. and um, you know. And it took that many times to get into, like...
1: Yeah, I could imagine. Yeah, I, you I know, was kind of like, well, wow, there's, there's yeah. a lot going on.
0: Yeah, um and I, I like to do that because I, I hate to get analytical on a first listen. Like, if right. I've got something I've got to listen to, it. I don't want to just sit down and like, okay, what's going on? I'd really like to have it, had it gone on and just, like, sort of spoke to me, um, pulled me into mm-hmm. it and say, oh, that was cool. And so... I say, oh, I'm going to be ready for that the next time I listen to it. And th- that's kind of how I approached to this one. And, um, so I'd listened to it throughout the week, you know, just, you know, sort of doing something else or then late at night. And only today did I finally come back with those memories in mind. Mm-hmm. And I think it's that kind of recording. Uh, it'll reward repeated listenings. Uh, and, uh, Absolutely. especially,
1: especially what's good about this is, um, uh, it's a record that invites repeated listeners She's yeah. like, oh, I didn't get all that you know kinda.
0: and there's um there's a lot invested here in terms of uh, composition and mm-hmm. uh, arrangement and then uh, programming so you know he's thought this out uh, we've got standards done in a unique way these nice originals and then the the layering of instruments finally adding vocals and yeah, you know I'm kind of interested in how he decided to Write a vocal track and put it on. But <laughs> at it works. the very end, uh, yeah, it was kind of odd. Yeah, yeah but there, I like uh, it. There
1: were a few surprises though. That the the brass came in right at the end. You didn't yeah. really think that would happen. you know? Yeah.
0: So yeah, interesting. Anyway, yeah. If you don't know Wanzie's piano playing, definitely a player you want to check out. Uh, you'll like this album, I think. And uh, finally, the new album from a pianist we both know and like and,
1: and love. Really, we like yeah, a lot. Yeah. And this
0: is even. Um, this is uh, something different here, um, uh, Bill Charlap uh, with his new album, switching over to Blue Note. I think he was on hmm. High Note before, uh, hmm. with a few of his uh, CDs that I have. I guess uh,
1: Don Was was listening. Yeah,
0: but uh, Street of Dreams, and so we've got um, Bill Charlap on piano, and uh, Peter Washington on bass, and No Relation Kenny Washington on drums. Um, here as this long-standing trio uh, that he's worked with. And um, now, this one is an album you've got to get into a very different sort of frame of mind to appreciate. Um, And what I mean by that, uh, most of this is extremely slow tempo work. Yeah. However, rather than, you know, being lethargic or uh, uninteresting, you have to understand uh, what Charlap is capable of uh, on piano. Now, he he really swings when he plays, uh, and he can you know do you know standard swinging along or fast playing. But I think he's exploring a different aspect of his capabilities here, and by slowing things down or focusing on these slow tempo uh, numbers. He's sort of opening up. When I listen to this, uh, I get a sort of 3D depth into the music where using the slow tempos almost allows him to take the tempo out of the equation of what he wants to do. So, you know, it's kind of... um, it's really hard these are one of these hard musical things to explain but right. when you know john coltrane on saxophone played these blazing lines that you know i know you hate this term but they called it
1: the sheets of
0: sound the sheets of sound um, yeah because I just
1: don't like the image i don't know so what
0: he's doing is giving yeah. you these uh complex harmonic images by right. the scales that he's running through at a blazing speed uh, so that you can actually outline the chords you know in your brain from these lines that he's giving you in sheets this is sort of the opposite this is sort of like uh slowing down uh the tempo so much that there's so much space that the the harmonies almost sort of come out to you not in sheets but sort of in depth textures that's that's the best I can explain to the effect I got from what Charlap is doing right. here wow. um,
1: and sounds yes. heavy
0: yeah well it's but it's beautifully heavy I thought of um, it as
1: a free, as a light kind of album though. It's not light no, that it didn't have content but I mean light that uh, it wasn't like really kind of you know pushing my intellect no, in order to understand it or anything no, I but think, I guess it could
0: I think yeah. if you yeah keep listening to this um, and it's going to sort of come out to you um that extra space that's sort of you know there's always space in the notes and the great players use space between their lines you right. know if you listen to uh you know you know if you listen like chet baker uh these uh players who have just uh this kind of great phrasing uh, and they always leave enough space. They never play more than they need to. And Charlop has given himself, like, I feel like, uh, an extra space to work in with the tempos that he takes on this album. And then he he just jumps into those, uh, and you're always waiting for something that could have come out of this, you know, bubbling cauldron of uh, kind of sounds. So anyway, that's how I described this whole thing. And wow. um, we... St- it's and so charlotte is not a composer and he's you know pretty straightforward with that when he uh uh, describes his style he's an interpreter of songs so we're not going to get any original things here but we do get some great uh mining of classic tunes which begin with the duke uh a dave brubeck tune Uh, and this one has a very evenly spaced piano chords in the intro uh, gets into a relaxed swing as the bass and drums join in. Charlie tinkles out spaced-out notes uh, before he gets around to the famous melody uh, as played. You know, you may know this. Uh, Miles Davis played this. A lot of people have covered this tune. Uh, he nicely accents the melody, and part of his style is sort of peppering these really low notes in the, in the left hand boom, you know, he just hit these Hmm. uh, kind of things that jar you. And he does that throughout uh, most of his recordings. He leaves tons of space between the phrases, shows a nice sense of touch and swing. There's a mix of lyrical lines, percussive left-hand chords. It's very tasty overall. Peter Washington's bass tone is really fat underneath, and Kenny Washington keeps perfect time. Nice cymbal technique he never... Plays too much. He's a subtle drummer, uh, so it's a nice start to the recording.
1: Yeah, the uh, the, the opening kind of reminded me a bit of Debussy, yes, yeah. those wide kind of kind of chords. And then, like you had said, um, uh, Charlotte does he, um, the melody emerges from the direction of the chords. Like the chords are kind of moving like in a certain direction, and then the melody just right. kind of is moving in the same direction. So sort of. it was really a beautiful effect. I liked it a lot. Yeah. They're really struck by that.
0: Yeah, it's nice. Uh, he has time to develop that. Uh, next, uh, we're going to get a tune, uh, Strayhorn, Ellington, uh, and also uh, Latouche, uh, Daydream. Uh, you probably know this melody. Uh, it gets a rubato piano introduction, a very, very slow ballad tempo. Uh, Kenny Washington's brushing delicately, with some very sustained soft sounds. It's almost amazing he can keep that sort of shushing going for so long. Charlop fills in the melody gaps uh, with very pretty closely voiced chords in between his lines. uh, And they're sometimes rolled chords. Peter Washington gives the pulse of the movement below on the bass. Charlop is really great at a tempo like this uh, this is what I think this whole album is about uh, this space to work with he plays with subtlety and taste he, but he mixes fluid lines curling flask runs uh, and he also masterfully manipulates the dynamics uh, here there's some things that are so soft it's like mm-hmm. did he really play that and then there's some really chiming and that's where he pulls out, you know, the tone from the piano. Um, there's a little spot where uh, Kenny Washington, uh, he gets kind of inspired. Maybe they thought it was going to take off. The, and the the brushing goes into double timing just for a little bit. And you think, oh, it's going to take off. No. And then it sort of uh, uh, goes back to where it was. And there's an interesting false ending chord. Uh, you'll think it's over, but it's not. And then you get the final chord so this is where some of the beauty of space uh, comes in here uh number three uh learner in lane tune you're all the world to me another rubato piano intro it hints at a faster tempo to come the drums and bass come in kind of incrementally with gaps before the rhythm gets up to its final chugging speed Uh, there's tight hi-hat and snare hits that give a bounce for Charlop to swing over. Uh, he swings his melodies here, and listen to what his left hand is doing uh, underneath. Uh, not just chords under his playing. There's these occasionally jarring low note stabs uh, and other things going on. Uh, he trades fours with the drums uh, for a chorus before he comes back to the melody, and the ending has some nice spaces uh, for more fleeting lines uh, before the final chord, uh, so another really tasty uh, use of time on this tune. Uh, track four, I'll Know, by Frank Lusser. we got a piano chord intro here. The left hand starts with a repeating note pulse. Uh, Charlap lays out the melody gently. There's some syncopated lines where the bass and drums kick it forward here, but they don't they drop out, and then Charlop gets more extra space alone before he joins in again on the melody repeat. It's a nice effect to uh, sort of building up the tune. Uh, Charlop solos uh, close to the melody here with just pretty embellishments rather than deviating or going off onto uh, more exploratory things, Uh, but it's more than enough with the sparseness uh, that it's done here. And uh, Peter Washington here gets some really nice, subtle and lovely baseballing near the end. You might almost miss it because the volume is so low, but it just adds that nice touch uh, to the subtlety. Track I five... Wanted- Okay. Oh, but I
1: want to say something about the end of this. Um, hmm. uh, at the end, he pauses right before the resolution. Is like a long pause, yeah. And you're 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 guessing, you're thinking, oh, is this going to be a false cadence, or is this going to be the end of the song? You don't really know, right? And then you find out he plays this single note as the as the end of the yeah. piece, and uh so you don't know if it could- i mean it could continue from that, but that winds up being the end of the piece, so right. it doesn't really resolve, but in your mind, I guess because it ends yeah. it goes on the next piece it does it was a really uh sort of um I can't think of the word to say it was um it's really uninterpretable by the yeah. listener what he really means by that because he doesn't right. give you enough, yes, you know, so right. it's mysterious, let's say that maybe be yeah, mysterious the word I want. Yeah. yeah
0: yeah it's. it's draws you into it for sure uh track five uh kenny burrell the great uh guitarist's tune uh, your host this gets a mid-tempo swinging melody uh it's got a nice bouncing bass line little gaps for charlotte to fill in here uh kenny washington's fills and hits are varied and tasty on this tune Uh, our solo is also tasty and very swinging uh And here again, listen to both hands. Uh, The left hand gives these sort of rhythmic kicks uh, to what he's doing in the right hand. He's sort of like almost like kicking himself along with the uh, left hand accompaniment, which is fun to listen to. Uh, The melody at the end alternates with unexpected chords for a nice touch, and it finishes with some very complicated cascades of uh, notes, which are really pretty track six, another standard uh, out of nowhere, Johnny Green, Edward Hyman composition. Uh, This one, no intro comes straight out with the melody at a medium swing here. Uh, There's a little break into a melodic bass solo. Uh, Washington's sound is deep, uh, but he has a very soft attack, almost no string slap in his tone. Uh, It's a very pure kind of sound. I I thought his style and his technique is kind of unique. You know, a lot of bass players get that... You get that sound. There's not much of that in his sound. It's this rounded bass tone. Uh, Charlop's solo is playful, Uh, gets some crashing left-hand notes in, and some interesting descending figures. Trades off uh, eights with uh, Kenny for some tasty drummings, and at the end some nice substituted chords uh, that we're not used to with this melody. Uh, And nice treatment for a standard, yeah uh check seven what are you doing for the rest of your life i think we're making podcasts but uh, (laughs)
1: that's uh... going to be it from here on (laughs) although you never know we're not traveling that's for sure Uh,
0: (laughs) but uh yeah michelle Legrand, alan bergman a long rubato melody intro creates a yearning for something and then the bass and drums join in delicately it's very slow again this is this 3d magic for charlotte here paints all these pretty ideas um peter washington again a nice lovely bass tone in the descending lines the drums and bass drop out again once it gets going that's kind of cool uh charlotte floats a while before he returns he's even more delicate and sparse in his solo here i feel this track is like that most mining of the space he creates lots of expectations between his soft lines and trilling figures Um, when he returns to the melody once more he's solo again they drop out give him all that space uh, until the final note which they let just ring out forever and wow this is some really subtle beauty uh, yeah he achieves some real uh,
1: poignancy here this is this really kind of came out as like i think the emotional yeah uh, you can't really say high point i but it, the, uh, the uh the uh the 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 emotional subtle point of the album mm-hmm. there's like something in there and it's mm. it's really poignant it's it's kind yeah. of you know, it kind of touches you kind of gently it's really nice yeah. this is I, what you're doing the rest I, of your life yeah.
0: as I feel like as I said I feel like it's just like pulling pulling the tune into 3D space and you just mm. can dive in and just like with these um, kind of YouTube 3D type right. of videos if you've seen this you can look in all directions you almost feel like you have that amount of space in here to like look around yeah. with your ears as to what's going on because
1: the tempo is not hurrying you along. I wonder uh, what his concept was going into this. I'd be curious to know. I don't know. Because yeah, yeah. you know, we're interpreting, of course, but yeah, he, he, I don't know. Yeah. Anyway.
0: I, I think it takes a, a player with a real sort of uh, maturity. And then a, a, I, I think it's a concept. I really think it must be a conscious concept to, to slow things down enough that yeah. uh, you can pull these things out but yeah and
1: and to get your uh, trio mates to agree (laughs) to to go
0: these guys have been playing together for a long time so
1: yeah um, they're probably all on the same page i I
0: could be wrong right (laughs) Uh, (laughs) anyway uh we get the title track uh number eight street of dreams victor young and samuel m lewis composition piano intro left hand note that playfully Uh, sneaks in among the uh, melody notes. When the bass and drums come in, the tempo is very slow again, but by this point you won't mind at all. Uh, Charlap again uses lots of space, focuses on dynamics. Uh, His left hand can be imperceptibly soft, but then have an unexpected accent at any moment. Uh, He builds it up a bit. Uh, Kenny Washington adds a bit of click to the rhythm once it gets going. and it gets quiet ending with a final jolt. So uh, my f- comments finally, when I listened to this a number of times, I said, uh, it's a tasty I've- and reserved playing at the highest level by players who are more than listening to each other. They're
1: yeah. sort
0: of breathing together. Uh, I mean, Charlap can swings hard when, swing hard when he wants to, but here the focus is on creating a 3D space through slow tempo numbers. Uh, you need re- repeated listenings to get all of the sweet
1: drops of cookie dough left in the bowl from this. <laughs> oh, that's album. pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> that's
0: Actually, I, it. Yeah. I
1: I listened to this several times myself. I think I heard mm. it like four times. Like, you know, I, I heard it before this week though. I had already started listening to it, but it it kept drawing me back. And I think I did like. Yeah, what you said—the space—and they're just these moments too. I think when you have a lot of space like that, you're focusing yeah. on what's happening in that moment and what right. what, whatever, what he's going to do. One thing I noticed also on "Street of Dreams," the very last track of the uh, album, this was even sparser playing by Char- yeah. Charlap than on the rest of the album in an album that's already got a lot of space on it. I thought that was it was all pretty. Uh, it was bold in an understated way, right? That exactly. Sense.
0: That's that's the whole You're point. It's one
1: of those contrasting contradictory yeah. type things. But I really enjoyed this album a lot. I mean, it's something that uh, I listen to often, and I'm going to continue to listen to. Yeah. So I highly recommend it to everybody out there.
0: Yeah, I mean, this. Hmm. I mean, I play piano poorly, uh, just as you know something well to, so do I now
1: I don't to work it
0: out I've always used it as a work something to work out um yeah. you know musical problems for my other instruments and to, vi- to be visual uh, uh, musical sort of a device for composition and things Um but you know the possibilities with uh, piano are endless in terms of you know what what can be done with it in styles and uh yeah we're still going ideas (laughs) yeah and so here you know this great uh sort of example of that you know three pianists all with masterful technique all trying completely different ideas on these new recordings you're going back to Bach but it's made new uh you got Wanzi's style who I mean he's he, uh, What I like is he's got a, a lot of uh, reserve in his approach too. Uh, when, even when he's playing fast, it's almost as if there's something pulling him back from it, and I like that kind of thing. And then we've got uh, Charlap's approach, which is just sort of like, it's. I almost feel like I'm looking inside the time on this recording, and uh, he's getting in there. And they're all... Really great and interesting. Uh,
1: I think I'm going to put this on after the podcast ends. Uh, yeah. I'm kind of very interested. I want to hear it again. Re- releases of different character, um, different ways to approach
0: time, really. Uh, mm. And uh, there's all kinds of harmonic things going on. Uh, nice different kind of compositions and things. So, yeah, um, a really fulfilling um, piano selection uh, going yeah. on here.
1: Excellent so, choices, I thought. Yeah. Thank you. So another enjoyable week. This really made all these well, listening to all these albums just made this year so worthwhile despite yeah. all the uh the uh lunacy around covid going on you know I almost didn't even notice it with all this
0: yeah, who cares?
1: yeah who cares, who cares? Who cares what Got all those stereo. people with
0: masks outside are doing we're inside listening to this what, stuff what are you gonna
1: like. do lock me in okay yeah all
0: right <laughs> don't take my streaming away <laughs>
1: don't take okay. my streaming away right exactly otherwise so what uh, is this 40
0: album end. 40 episodes six albums what's that 240 albums that's pretty we've good. heard 240 albums this year
1: that's yeah. amazing and wow.
0: we're not done yet
1: <laughs> well my, my minus four because on the first episode we only heard one two albums yeah. so I think we got
0: well. You had f- well, technically, they're more than that because we had a few four. four this year. Yeah, yeah, we had so. a few four album
1: yeah. shows. You know, for me, mm.
0: yeah, not bad.
1: Right. Around we'll two hundred forty albums. You know, I think we can safely say two hundred fifty. Yeah, two fifty. Yeah,
0: that's not bad. We're benching 250. I think that's an excellent year. Was that Jerky? That was another Jerky Boys one, was it? You do the bench work? Yeah, I'm benching 250. Yeah. (laughs) 250 pieces? No, 250 albums. That's not bad. Um, I mean, to actually, you know, listen to in detail that many albums, that was, uh, it's been a good project. And uh, for any of the listeners who have been there, and it's us. good
1: for it's good for the mind too, yeah. as as everybody around mind. you goes insane. You can just kinda chill out. Yeah. <laughs> Listen to music. It's good for you. And not only that, it'll expand your mind. They used to say that in the sixties, but it's true. You know, you kinda Yeah. The music has some, has some good qualities that it puts into the onto the brain. It was it? Uh, Robert Greenberg had mentioned that um music uh Listening to complicated music like classical and jazz, or really any kind of um, classical world music, um, mm. will help you think outside the box more effectively because it's not really linear. It kind of affects the brain that way. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I think we need a lot more thinking outside the box in the world right now. So, I think- listen to these works, and even some. If you're if you're listening in India, listen to some of your native. Uh, you know, classical well, music. I mean, it's good for your brain.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, getting into these different dimensions of how we experience the world is one of the things about music that's really mm. nice because, of course, music follows in time. That's the thing that makes it different from other sort of art forms, you know, a, mm. a picture that you can. Yeah, everything else is in space. Appreciate yeah, so. completely in space, right? Yeah. But So we're forced to go through time. Uh, Which is a hard thing to grasp. It's a hard thing to do and requires it requires memory and attention and things. But at some point, like I felt in this Charlotte, uh, or I should say Charlotte, it's not pronounced. It is Charlotte? really. It's yeah, I was wondering yeah. about that. Okay. Yeah. So finally, I say it correctly. But okay. oh, well. <laughs> um, he, um, he opens up this sort of three dimensions. So we're in time, but I feel like I get another... Uh, dimension that's opened up in, through that and uh, those kind of things can happen. And I think that's the sort of uh, takeaway to regular life. as you're going along you know in your daily mundane tasks or interactions with people, uh, because when you're listening to this sort of medium of sound that just travels along linear, it sort of opens up these sort of uh, you know like new windows, and, you know, when no. you get these pop-ups when you're browsing the internet, uh, in music you get these sort of pop-ups and uh, things that come out, and, and they're not annoying. No, they're not. Yeah, they're not <laughs> annoying. But but that can happen.
1: They're the opposite of annoying.
0: <laughs> that can happen in real life as you're experiencing these linear time things. Yeah. That you know you sort of tune out just to get through the uh, mundane mundane kind of nature of things. But it sort of heightens your awareness of things that carry over into everyday life I I think that's a a carryover a takeaway of broadening the mind from listening to music and Hmm. uh, you know and we've uh, yeah we've had a lot of that and I think we're going to build on that going forward so
1: yeah well I think we should end this podcast right about here before we get too philosophical too philosophical (laughs) yeah and (laughs) Lest we I think have, I think we already did, but lest we have anyway. waxed
0: too philosophical. Uh next week we'll break out the uh eggnog steaks, sausages and drinks and get a little festive uh
1: with a little lighter material for Christmas episode. Well, I don't uh, know about so. light, but you know, at least not in the classic some of it will be light. Some Let's of it will be lighter. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, well, it's not going to be heavy like the Benjamin Britten piece but uh no nah, it'll be lighter and fun yeah. i think uh as <laughs> It's not going to be. be no meditations on death for christmas okay i yeah, hope not anyway <laughs> Yeah It's so, just not the right time that's yeah. that's for lent <laughs> That's for lent yeah Yeah,
0: yeah. We'll crucify you <laughs> in the spring but for now we will uh have a feast of joy Yes uh, Yeah, so this has been episode 40 of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. And uh, as we said at the beginning, please do like, subscribe. Uh, If you enjoyed the podcast, uh, send us a comment at adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Next week, episode 41 will feature new holiday favorites, all new releases in classical and jazz. Yeah, mostly from this year. There's going to be yeah. one
1: from last Oh, last uh, the, the one that didn't that, make it in a time. That's big one that didn't make it in time. That's a big
0: failure when your Christmas album doesn't make it in time. Yeah. But, uh, I guess that's I why know. some of them released
1: them like a bit they too early. They should release early. them in October, really. Yeah, but, really. Uh, Some of them get released in December. Yeah. You know, what's the point of that? Yeah. You're not going to hear it in time.
0: Anyway, I think next yeah. week will be the
1: sweet spot.
0: Uh, still two weeks to Christmas, but not too early so that you'll get sick of it and uh, go yeah. humbug on us too got, early. So. No, we got three weeks to Christmas. Is that, it's, it's, yeah. 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 So it'd be just in time. Yeah. You can still Oh, by the way, I it. should,
1: one more thing. We are recording on December 5th. This is, today is the, today, the day we're recording, is the 230th anniversary of Mozart's death. He died in uh, yeah. December 5th, 1791, so... Rest in peace. He rest in peace. He, I'm sure he is. He's uh, sure still he is. remembered. Yeah. Too he can't get those
0: royalties, but yeah, anyway. Well. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks. We'll see you again next week. So stay tuned for the holiday festivities.